This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Rivington House Hospice in Fraser, New Hampshire. Live out your last days with a friendly staff and our community cat, Azrael, who always knows when it's time to go to sleep. Rivington House. Finally. True. Restful. Sleep. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And it's Stephen King's sequels week on Pod Cemetery with 1992's Children of the Corn 2, The Final Sacrifice, and 2019's Doctor Sleep. But first, I just wanted to say apologies for missing last week. It was unavoidable. Everything is okay on our end, and we thank you for your concern and support. Big shout-outs to Chickapedia, R.A. Busby, Shaka Swan, Var Strikes Again, Films or Ghost, G Soto 83, Nikki Desnoyers. I'm so sorry, I completely obliterated your name. Sounds like Desione, uh, which is Japanese for right. Uh, Dave Mastery, Brock, and La Suplexa uh, for sharing your love. We love each and every one of you. Thank you so, so much. Yes, thank you. But before we get into the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror trivia. Give me what you got. Which Carrie star also plays Linda in the original 1978 film Halloween? So you're asking me to give the name? (sighs) Of the actress who was in both Carrie and Halloween. We just talked about her when we watched Halloween because she has a bit part in... The new Halloween, right? I think so. Is that the same woman? I don't know. I think so. I could never name her. Sorry. PJ Souls. Yep. Yep. That's the one. Damn it. (laughs) We did just talk about her like less than a month ago. Cool. Sorry, PJ. (laughs) This one's easier for you, Kelsey. Okay. The original Children of the Corn takes place in Gatlin, Nebraska. In what Nebraska city does this sequel take place? Hemingford. And why is that important, Kelsey? Well, Hemingford is where, first of all, it's where the adult Ben lives in It, which Uh no one ever remembers. But it is also where... Mother Abigail? Mother Abigail lives at the beginning of The Stand, not later when she moves to Colorado. Come to Hemingford home? Yes. Which is just the name. I don't know if they ever confirmed that it actually is in Hemingford, but it's the name of her land that she lives on originally. Yeah. Where all the corn is growing. Yes, where all the corn is growing. Yeah. And um, they talk about how what's-his-face might be he who walks behind the rose. All sorts of connections. Yes. Randall Flagg. Randall Flagg, that's his name. Well, that leads us right into our first movie, 1992's Children of the Corn 2, The Final Sacrifice. 
written by A.L. Katz and Gilbert Adler, of course, based on the original short story by Stephen King, directed by David Price, starring Terrence Knox, Paul Scherer, Ryan Bowman, Christy Clark, and Rosalind Allen. What is Children of the Corn 2 about, Kelsey? Well, you think they defeat He Who Walks Behind the Rose at the end of the first film. But even if you, but... I mean, they kind of don't, right? Like, don't they just get away and then he ends up attacking... They they explode, they think they explode him. Oh, right, yes! Oh, they use the gasohol. Yeah. Oh, man, okay. So, I don't know... I mean, he's probably an eternal being. You probably right. can't kill Right, you him. can't just set the corn on fire and everything's going to be okay. Right. But more importantly, there's all these kids that are still yeah. alive. <laughs> they may run away in the in the night, but there's still all these kids there. So <laughs> they go to the next town and tell them, hey, there's all these crazy kids. I wrote that. I like that it's a big story after the couple from the first movie fucking told somebody about it. Yes. And so all the kids that are left over who murdered their parents. Apparently people don't really, like, nobody's clear around what happened. They think that the people who actually did the murders are dead now. Malachi and these kids are and, just and Isaac. Isaac, so. These kids are just victims. Right. And they need a victims. home. They need a home. Mm-hmm. Kelsey, they need a home. <laughs> in Hemingford home. In Hemingford, yes. So? So they go off to Hemingford to, to become... To be, like, adopted by the citizens of Hemingford. Yeah, which is just... That is... It's so not how the system works, no. but whatever. <laughs> and the, they are not done. No. The children of the corn are not done. Corn is not done with them. You can watch the movie for free if you have a subscription to Fubo TV, Sling, or DirecTV. You can rent it for $3 on Amazon, Fandango, Vudu, and Redbox, and $4 on iTunes. Or buy it for $10 on Amazon, Google, YouTube, Microsoft, Fandango, Vudu, and Redbox. Or for some reason, $13 on iTunes. <laughs> Should people watch Children of the Corn 2? Yes. Oh my god. Yes. I was blown away. Yeah. Let's be clear. <laughs> this movie is terrible. Yes. It is not good. But in all the best ways. I had such a good time watching this movie. Yes, it is. It was a blast. It is so off the wall and bizarre and just... Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you just let you're left with your arms up like what just happened? Did but, that really just happen? But in all the best ways. <laughs> it's not like crazy ridiculous or anything like that, but like it it baffled me by some of the decisions that that it made and <laughs> in a way that really really entertained me. If you're into that sort of thing, yes, you should absolutely watch this movie. If you're looking for a quality follow-up, to Children of the Corn, look elsewhere. It is not here. Right. This so, is not Isaac and awesome monologues. No, Isaac won't come back for... Till the sixth one. Yeah, for many, many installments. You get some monologues from Micah. Right. I forgot. <laughs> it's not exactly the same quality. It's not. It's not. <laughs> but that's okay. You can take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 1992's Children of the Corn 2, 
The Final Sacrifice. An evil from another dimension has possessed the children. She got the first to be sacrificed! It's controlling their minds and feeding their hate. They're home alone, but their parents are never coming back. Based on the story by the master of terror, Stephen King, comes the conclusion. Children of the Corn 2, The Final Sacrifice, rated R, starts Friday at theaters everywhere. My first note here is four by three. Wow. (laughs) What does that mean? That's the aspect ratio. It's a television aspect ratio that it had. So that was interesting. We watched it on iTunes, too, so I was surprised. Can you get us started, Kelsey? What happens at the beginning of Children of the Corn 2? Well, we get to see the corn. Of course. You have to see the corn. And children are singing a time unto every season. For every season. Right, but not the song. Not the song. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They're doing the psalm, the the hymn from Uh the actual Bible, not the pop song. (laughs) And we end up seeing a guy. Okay, so there are people from Hemingford, supposedly, who show up and are looking through these houses. Finding all these dead bodies. Finding all these dead bodies. All these people... All these adults that have been killed, including one, I swear to God, just has a corn cob shoved right up under his chin. And yes. that's how he was murdered. Which is not at all how they killed them. Plus, they got rid of all the bodies. Yeah, I don't know. They they gave them to he who walks behind the rose, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. Who cares? <laughs> There's a lot of things we're supposed to ignore. Like, this is supposed to take place immediately after the first one. But... Everything's updated to 1992 standards, so I guess we're just supposed to ignore that? Yes. I guess. There's this lady named Mrs. Burke, who apparently came from Gatlin. Saw that things were going south years before anything happened, (laughs) and decided to move with her husband. Or her husband died and then she moved, something like that. Her husband, she did not move years before it happened. She only moved a little bit before it happened, because they murdered her husband. Yeah, he walked into the corn and never came back is the way she describes it. Yes, and And she was like a teacher, and later they're going to talk about, remember how in the first one the little girl can draw the pictures? Yes. So the idea is that she drew the pictures, the teacher saw it, tried to warn the townsfolk, nobody listened to her, so she picked up her house and moved. She says that? Guys, literally that's what she did. (laughs) She took her house off its foundation, drove it to Hemingford, and put it up on Jack's in an empty lot. Yes. It's remarkable. <laughs> I love it. And there's going to be a fun thing that happens with that house later. <laughs> but so she comes out and she's just like, those kids should pay for what they did. And they absolutely should. But, well, but nobody believes that they did anything wrong. The bleeding hearts of Hemingford. <laughs> Are like, how can you blame the children? (laughs) Won't anyone think of the children? (laughs) Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? But so, yeah, they all leave for Hemingford. And then we get to meet... Garrett and Danny, father and son duo, who seem to hate each other's guts. Kid's name is Danny. It's probably a callback to Shining. Uh Uh-huh. So... 
Garrett, who's like the hero kind of of the kind story, of. kind of. It's more the son. Yeah, he's a reporter. He used to be a reputable reporter, and now he works for like the equivalent of the National Enquirer. He left his wife and son, and now that his ex-wife is getting married, he has to take his son while they're off on their honeymoon or something like that. Well, also, he hates his stepdad. Yeah. Calls him a shithead. Uh-huh. So they wanted him out while they were about to get married and then go on their honeymoon. So now Garrett has his son, Danny, and neither of them really like each other. <laughs> right. But they get there late because the son missed his flight. Yeah. So they get there late after everybody's already left from Gatlin. They're there to report on the story yeah. of the kids. And they see these two dudes who used to be colleagues. Yeah, they're of in a his. news van and they're passing by the opposite direction and they're making fun of them. Danny's like, oh, it's good to see that your colleagues respect you, Dad. <laughs> yeah. But he asks them how bad it was, and they tell him, oh, it wasn't as, it's not that bad, we've seen worse. Uh, what happened around here? Well, a bunch of kids killed all the adults in town. It's just your basic Sunday afternoon in the Bible Belt. Wait a minute, killed them all? Well, it's no worse than anything you and I saw at Jonestown. Where are they now, kids? Let's try film at 11. You'll love my wrap-up. Come on, we're out of here. <laughs> hey, don't look so down. Just make something up. That's your specialty, isn't it? <laughs> You're an asshole. Later. Well, it's nice to see your friends like and respect you. But don't worry, you don't need to care about these two guys. They will die immediately. They drive into <laughs> the corn. They're looking I to think, take a shortcut. I think it's supposed to be that he who walks behind the rose, like, enticed Guided him. them. Yeah, somehow. But they go, and... Then there's a tornado... There's a tornado. It's a twister. It's a twister. <laughs> and the dude in the passenger seat tells the driver to get out of the van. He does. And then the dude from the passenger seat walks around the van and gets in the driver's seat. Like, almost like he's like, fuck you. Get out of here. I'm taking this. You can die. Or I know that's not the case, but eventually he turns around and comes back because it's so bad. But the dude who was the driver gets his throat cut With by corn. corn. And by a stalk of corn, and then the dude from the passenger seat, who's now in the driver's seat, gets a full stalk of corn right through the chest, through the front window. Yes. And he dies now. And we see some electricity to show yeah. that there is he who walks behind the rose. Uh -huh. But yeah, that's, so that's a death. I mean, yeah. two deaths, uh -huh. I guess. But like, we're not describing it. It is so weird looking. It's so weird. But okay. While there... The reporter dad will see our love interest. What's her name? Angela. Angela. And she is wearing a shirt, which makes you look down. So, like, like to read it, because it's saying, ask me about my bed and breakfast uh -huh. or something. But it looks like he's staring at her chest because he's supposed to be reading what it says uh -huh. on her shirt. And so he's like, hey, we need to stay to bed and breakfast. And she's like, okay, here we go. But Follow me. Yes. And who do, who's with her, Kelsey? Her new adopted son. Micah. <laughs> yes. The main replacement for Isaac. Yes. You don't know it yet, but yes. Yeah. He doesn't know it yet. Yeah. 
because he's going to have oh, a Oh, he's going to have a, a, a vision. Yes. <laughs> yes, he is. The dad is talking to her, and I think she's, like, surprised at how young he is or whatever. He's supposed to be way younger than he is. Oh, my God. he Like, 10 years younger than he actually is in real life. And what he certainly looks like as well. Because he was supposed to be, like, 15 or something when he got his girlfriend pregnant. He says, I was 17. Oh, 17, Meaning yeah. he's supposed to be 35. Yes. No. No. <laughs> or even younger than that. I think, it, it, how, how old is Danny supposed to be? Isn't he, like, 15? Oh, is he only 15? Yeah, so he's supposed to be like 32, and so I think he's age. like 42 in actuality. I think he's 45. Yeah, so like, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> they tried to get away with that. Just whatever, man. But he he blames it on youthful mistakes. Yes. To which uh, the son is just like, isn't that what you blame everything on? So he runs away. I'm out of here. I'm on the first bus out of here. And Angela's like, don't worry. He's coming back. And Garrett's like, I don't know. And she's like, no, trust me. <laughs> he's not going to get very far. <laughs> well, when he's waiting for the bus, who does he see? Lacey, played by Christy Clark, who is like the the sexy love interest, you know, the Southern girl in the in the Daisy Dukes and stuff. Who will take a shower in a waterfall later. Christy Clark is the little sister from Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. The one who wears the Chu Manchus? Yeah. The the Fu Manchus is the name of the cereal that they get. And then she gets like the little nails inside the cereal box. The fingers. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that little girl is Christy Clark who grew up to play Lacey in this movie. But so she rides by him on her electric bike. <laughs> for some reason, whatever. And she's like, what are you doing? He's like waiting for the next bus. And she says, good move. But then she turns back around and she tells him, it's not due till next Tuesday. Yeah, you're going to be waiting here a while. <laughs> that night, Micah will f- run out into the corn to meet with his buddies. Yeah. And he will have something happen to him. Do you want to describe this, Chris? So I can't remember what starts it. He walks out into the corn. While everyone else is meeting, he hasn't made it to them yet. And he just, he ha- how, what starts the vision? Well, he thinks, he yells out, Jedediah, is that you? It's not funny. And then you think he's dying. Like, you think that he's, that the, he who walks behind the rose is killing him. There's yeah. like this... There's a bunch of colors. Okay, yeah. So he Micah gets, starts to swirl. He gets sucked into this really bad CG vortex. And it's like he's in the human bloodstream or something <laughs> like that. It's so bizarre. It is and so yeah, And strange. then he starts to fall apart and be put back together. Yes. They were way the more ambitious than they could actually pull off. It's early CG when they try this crazy shit. And for like, no money. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. It is so wonderfully bad. It, it, it is nuts. And then, <laughs> and then, like, it just cuts to a bunch of kids. It doesn't tell you what happened. Nothing. You find out what happened, but it just d- goes nuts. And then kids. Yeah. Uh-huh. With zero explanation. And you are sitting there just like, what did 
did you just do, movie? And they're talking about, like, okay, what happens now? Do we continue serving he who walks behind the rose? Like, what do we do? There's this guy here named Mordecai, who's kind of the replacement Malachi, although not nearly as interesting. <laughs> and then there's a there's another kid. What's his name? Is that... Jedediah? Jedediah. Probably. And he gets in an argument with Mordecai. What's the line that he says? Stupid corn. <laughs> What's that line? There ain't nothing out there, Mordecai, except a lot of corn. Stupid old corn. <laughs> it's so... Good, this delivery. It is written. A leader will come from the corn. He shall make us as one. There ain't nothing out there, Mordecai, except a lot of corn. Stupid old corn. I love it. It's really, really good. And then the vortex spits Micah out. No, Micah's just suddenly there with them. And he's like... Spit out somewhere else. Like they hear him screaming or something like that. What was that? And then he, like, lands, and then he walks up, and he's there, and he's like, no, we will continue to serve he who walks behind the rose. No! He shall not allow it! <laughs> Do you really think it was all Isaac's doing? Like, oh, it's so, he's so terrible. Okay, so at least, at least Isaac was great. This guy's terrible, but in another good way. Oh, no, I love him so so much ryan bowman is his name and i love him in this he gives off this sort of feeling like um what's the dude who did the voice of binks in hocus pocus and max goof what's his name marsden something like that yeah uh he gives off that sort of vibe where he's got like the the black hair and he's short and he's kind of attractive for for a kid his age in the 90s but then he gives these ev- evil looks that are just so good. I love him. Mm-hmm. He is a, I would say, worthy holdover for Isaac in a bad sequel. That's that's the way I regard him. Well, yeah. No, I forgot. Yeah, he his lines are pretty great. Like, he shall not allow it. It's, <laughs> it's so good. Um, Still talking like Isaac. Yes. One of them, I think maybe Jedediah, is like, but they were our parents. And he goes, they are adults. But they found them. They found us. Jesus Christ, Micah, they were our parents. They were adults. They were of that world, and we have seen the way of that world, and it is evil. And he who walks says we must wait for a sign. Yep. And we will find that sign very soon. They'll get a sign, and the sign's going to be confusing? We'll get there. Yeah. But I mean, like, bigger than just how it appears and what it appears as. I mean, like, in the greater context of the story, it's a little confusing. But I think I might have an understanding of what it is. Okay. But go ahead. So Danny is walking around in the middle of the night because he's a teenager and he's mad at his dad. (laughs) And he's just walking along. All of a sudden, he sees all those kids just leaving the corn. And he's just like, oh, that's creepy. Yep. That's weird. I'm just going to walk this way. Oh, shit! It's Micah! Oh, my God! <laughs> yeah, Micah's just standing there behind him. He asks him, hey, do you know that chick I was talking to earlier? He's like, oh, yeah, that's Lacey. And the audience is like, what? Well, how would he know? He just got here. Yes. Apparently, Lacey also used to live in Gatlin. 
why he would assume that, I don't know. That, that they he would know him, her, I don't know. Yeah. I don't remember exactly how this scene begins, but for whatever reason, Mrs. Burke is out on her front porch because there is this, like, green mold made out of corn on her front door. Yes, so that's like an aflatoxin or something like that. It's the fungus that causes hallucinations and can ruin corn yields. It's the same one that they hint may be the cause of all the weird shit that happens in The Witch. Mm-hmm. It's that, which got me wondering, first of all, I was like, this is a weird tangent because that story is going to go places and it feels totally unnecessary. Oh, it's totally. Like, but then I realized that maybe this is an example of he who walks behind the rose making the corn harvest in Gatlin strong and the one in Hemingford fail because they don't worship him like the kids in Gatlin do. And so that's why their corn yield is being ruined. Maybe the movie doesn't go into it. It's just like, whoa, what? what is, why is this part of the story? Well... Later, when we talk to the Native American man... Yes, Red Bear. He will talk about how the, the legend goes that the kids killed their parents for becoming lazy because they became lazy is what ruined the crops, so they killed them. Okay. So that's kind of like <laughs> the... Maybe because all the people of Hemingford don't care about the corn and don't take good care of it. Yeah, uh-huh. He's it's going to be a whole, his wrath. It's going to be a whole separate plot line. We'll get to that. But yes, she has a cross what looks to be painted on her wall outside her house, out on her front porch, and it won't scrub off. It turns out it's this mold that's been painted onto her wall, and Garrett's there. Garrett shows up. He touches it. And it's like, Ew, and then he just wipes it on his pants. Yes. Yes. Which is so weird. But she's like, yeah, no, these kids fucking suck. And they're they're menacing me. And they're just standing there staring at her, being super threatening. And everybody's like, they're not doing anything. Yeah, what are they doing? Yeah. Uh-huh. They're just standing there staring at you. Then the father and his son, Danny, will get into like a big fight. I don't remember what they fight over. It's something stupid. But it's like a personal fight. And you knew earlier in the scene that the kids were standing there. And they never walked away. But like you assume that they did, because why would they have, why would a father and son have this big fight in front of these random kids? It feels like the scene moved on. Yes. And And then then cut back. And the camera moves. And they're still there. They're still just standing there. Just standing there staring at them as they had this personal fight (laughs) and they didn't care. And And like Micah's in the group. They know Micah. Yes. And and I think it's Mordecai asked Micah if this is the sign. Yes. And it is according to Micah. Uh Uh-huh. And Mordecai is super stoked about that. Because again, he is the replacement for Malachi. Yeah. (laughs) So... Danny in a huff runs away and finds the beautiful girl having a shower in a waterfall waterfall. in the middle of the town. (laughs) It's like by a bridge. It's kind of a little bit. But yeah, you could totally, anyone walking by could totally. I mean, she's not naked, but like, it's so bizarre. It is bizarre. It's absurd. The sexualization of this young woman goes places. Nothing like. 
terrible, but they really sexualize her. But so we're just gonna watch her bathe in the natural spring water. Yes, <laughs> for like a minute, like it's so weird. And then she realizes that he's watching her and asks him if he can swim, and so they go swimming. <laughs> And then they hang out and they bond and then they kiss. Yeah, they kiss really fast. Things are going well for these two. Yes. Danny's like, you know what? Maybe I like Hemingford. <laughs> <laughs> it's going so well, in fact, that she will ask him to take her to New York City. Oh, my God. She lays it on like thick. But then you find out her backstory. She doesn't have any family and She's living with like her aunt or something like that here, her right? Her parents are dead. Yeah. She's in a nowhere town. Uh-huh. Life sucks. But it's like she's totally seducing him and then like in the like, won't you take me to New York? Take me to New York with you. <laughs> I can't do that. Yes, you can. And you know, as soon as she gets there, she's going to be, well, see ya. Yes, you know, like exactly. it felt like that. You know what? Good for her. But like, it's just, it was really, she was laying it on thick. But meanwhile, Mrs. Burke, with her house that's on oh stilts. Oh my God. She, she's looking to lock herself in for the night, but her cat has gotten out and her cat has gotten under the house. So she crawls under the house. And while she's under there, she sees a bunch of kids legs yes and, and then, her dead cat yeah well no they grab the cat and they snap its neck while she's under there jesus yeah and oh that that's was, right she she shouts at them when they do that that yeah. was rough yeah you really didn't want that cat to die yeah um but then they set the hydraulic thing so the house starts lowering and she can't get out because they won't let her out. And then she gets stuck. And then the house completely crushes her. What and, a world. What and a world. she says, what a world. What a world. What a world. As she's being crushed. And then her legs are the only thing sticking out from under the house. She dies like the Wicked Witch of the East. It's hilarious. Especially when we then will meet her twin her sister. Her twin sister who is named West. Mrs. West. This random fucking Wizard of Oz reference out of nowhere. That's how weird and silly this movie is. Yes. And I'm here for it. Yes. It's so weird and strange and fun. So the next day. Uh-huh. Everybody's in church. And all the all the priest ever wants to talk about is fornication. Fornication. Fornication, my friends. He's one of those hellfire and brimstone type preachers, and that fornication and masturbation is going to lead everyone to hell. Yes. Do we even know who this person no. is? No. Some random Hemingford resident uh-huh. will get this terrible bloody nose and we see micah in the back pew and he has this i guess it's made out of a corn cob or it's just wood it's it looks a like wooden, just wood it's a wooden voodoo doll and i'm like are you serious they got voodoo now well no are you serious that they didn't use corn right yes uh-huh that's what did I'm you see the first uh -huh. movie they made all those little dolls out of corn husks and stuff yeah very upset but he's like digging this knife into the face 
of this voodoo doll and this guy just starts bleeding and his wife's like are you okay honey he's like i don't know what's going on and then like it just keeps coming and he gets blood everywhere and it starts coming out of out of his eyes and his ears and it takes a long time it goes on for a while before anybody else is like whoa (laughs) i wrote down jesus christ the bloody face scene yes like it was it was a lot (laughs) and then without any ceremony or anything micah just drops the doll and walks out Uh uh-huh and you're just kind of like did we know that character no but we do get introduced to the doctor this way and the doctor looks up and sees that Micah is there, and Micah just walks right out while this is all happening, and he's trying to save this dude to no avail. So, Danny's dad goes to the school in Gatlin, or I guess he just kind of goes to Gatlin, and he's just kind of take he's, he's looking around, but it's like, he doesn't take pictures of anything for a while, and then he finally does, and then he makes a comment about the fact that he doesn't have enough money for film, so he has to be careful with the film that he takes. And I was like, that took some thought. Okay, yeah, sure. It took some thought. And he is startled by a man named... Frank Redbear. I think he asks him, like, who are you? What are you doing here? And he goes, how like a white man? <laughs> To be trespassing and ask me who I am. Exactly. Uh You're the one who's trespassing, and yet I'm the one who's getting questioned. Uh And he knows his name, his date of birth. How does he know all this stuff? Is it magical Native American whatever? No, he just fucking stole his bag from his car outside. Don't leave your wallet in an unlocked car. (laughs) So good. But so he tells him a story about, like I said, there's like a legend or something where the gods of the corn will tell kids to kill their parents if their parents become lazy and don't take care of the corn. And that's when what's his name asks him. Okay. Is that what happened in Gatlin? Here's what he says. He says, Koyanis Katsi, it means life out of balance. My ancestors would have told you that man should be at one with the earth, the sky, the water. But the white man has never understood this. He only knows how to take. And after a while, there's nothing left to take. So everything is out of balance. And we all fall down. Garrett says, wait a minute. So that's what happened here in Gatlin? And Red Bear says, no. What happened in Gatlin was those kids went apeshit and killed everybody. Yes, it's so good. So good. He is my favorite character in this movie. He is so much fun. Every time he's on screen, I love it. And I mean, it's a pretty progressive character for what, 1992? Yeah, well, and then you get to the end. <laughs> what happens to the end? Spoiler alert, Red Bear dies. Oh, and no! And he becomes a Native American spirit. Oh, God, that's right. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh my god, he does. And he even doesn't he have like a whole like Yes, the thing? whole headdress and yeah. everything and yeah, uh-huh. Yikes. Which is you know they did zero research on whether that's like appropriate or yeah, it's <laughs> movie's nuts. You know it meant no ill will. It's just just completely tone deaf. Tone deaf. It's very early 90s. But in a, in a glorious way. Yes. 
And then he just, like, prances off down the street. <laughs> okay, anyway, that's that's spoilers on what happens to Red Bear. But he's a, uh, he's a professor at a university nearby. And that's so he knows all sorts of stuff. And so to, to John Garrett, he's going to be a like a source of information that he might want to get in contact with later. Well, he has information about the town of Gatlin and what happened because he's talking to Danny's dad and he's just like, you know, the teacher tried to warn the people, but they just wouldn't listen to her. And he's talking her. about Mrs. Burke. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he has to know, he has to be personal oh, I think he has somewhere. His, he has his assumptions that he's making. He's not so blind as the bleeding hearts in Hemingford. <laughs> so Micah and Danny will have a conversation because it's Micah's job to expand the children of the corn so he needs to gain people oh my for the flock. god he tries to recruit danny yes he tries to recruit danny and he tells danny his horrible childhood do you remember what his no. childhood was like so he was beaten severely by his father for every sin he ever committed this is a long monologue by the way and he describes how important that was, you know, to be the best person. And then one day he caught his own father sinning vigorously. Uh-huh, with a woman. Yes. Yeah. So he was very happy to deliver he who walks behind the rose message when it came time. Yeah. He, yeah, he, that's when he realized, like, the hypocrisy of adults and how... They're incapable of being as pure as children. Mm -hmm. So Garrett goes and tries to get information out of the local doctor who we saw previously in the church trying to care for the man with the severely bloody nose. <laughs> and uh, the doctor is not being helpful because he suspects that Garrett's intentions aren't the purest. Uh, and he basically refuses to give him any information. And then he sends Garrett away. Something like that. He's also upset when Garrett brings up the green shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's this green shit that was painted on Miss Burke's house. Do you know what this is? Yeah. And he calls her crazy. Don't listen yeah, to her. Uh -huh. And yeah, he, he shoos him out of his office. He's like, you only care about a story. That's all that matters to you. You don't care about this town and what happens to it. Very much like in the Night Stalker. Yes. Uh-huh. But he is essentially, the doctor, like, they kind of set him up in this scene because the kids are watching. They almost set him up like the gas station attendant in the first film. Almost like he knows that they're there and, like, he's trying to appease them, as you were saying. Yeah. But we find out that it has nothing to do with them. Yeah. He's a part of this whole other subplot. There's a conspiracy going on in Hemingford. But that's when the doctor will say, we have sinned and we are going to hell right before he dies. Yes, the kids are going to kill him. Do you remember how they kill him? Stabbed to death. That's a boring way to die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The kids aren't done killing. Oh, no. They Okay, yeah, but they do kill him with a knife eventually, but they stab him with the needles first. Remember? They keep stabbing him with the needles. No? No. <laughs> His death didn't really stand out to me. 
But after they kill the doctor, there's this weird moment where a little girl walks up to him with her doll. Yeah, and like pats him on yeah, the head with the doll's him hand. Yeah, pats with the doll, and you're just like, okay, movie. Because you know, she's just so pure and innocent. Isn't that creepy that, that she's with this murderous gang? Yes. Yeah. It's I I love it. I love just, all right, yes. let's just put that in there, uh-huh. movie. Oh, and it's funny because he, the doctor, when they first were coming to Hemingford, he gave them all lollipops. Yes. And yes. as they leave, they, they leave drop the lollipop. the lollipops. Yeah. Uh-huh. I love that they kept it for that for that one moment of, ha ha, fuck I, you. I was paying attention to this. I noticed it and I looked it up to confirm. They don't mention the second time, but the first time he's given... Mordecai is given a yellow lollipop. When he sits down on the bus, it's red. But the one he leaves on this body is yellow again. So they they were consistent enough with what he was given and what he left. But for some reason, he just has a random red lollipop on the bus. Interesting. Whatever. It's not, but that's okay. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Who's having sweaty sex? Is it the teens or is it the adults? No, it's the adults. Garrett and the chick from the bed and breakfast oh my have god, very sweaty yes. sex. Oh my god, yes. Yes. That's a scene that happens. Too. That is a scene that happens for <laughs> no good reason. <laughs> Zero think, good. Yeah, she doesn't come back happens. in the She doesn't come back in the story, period. <laughs> I don't think we ever see her again. <laughs> Yeah, now that I think about it, th- no, maybe she gets attacked by the kids at some point, but like, it, it has no bearing on the story at all. We just needed to get our hero laid. Yes. Ugh, anyway. Well, but then we get a like a marriage scene where teens are gonna fuck. Yes. <laughs> Let so- Gatlin and Hemingford be united. <laughs> so they have recruited a Hemingford girl. Who wanted to join them, and then they are uniting her and the dude who's like, stupid old corn. (laughs) That dude. They are basically marrying them off. They are pairing them together to unite the two towns uh, as a symbolic gesture, basically. Well, also, they're going to have a baby. Yes. Well, they need to keep having kids. They they mentioned that in the first one. They're going to die pretty soon, Uh so they got to have kids before (laughs) they die. But Danny is watching and Micah will see that he is watching and bring him again into the fold and say, do you want to be as one? It's so bizarre. And Danny, he's in this big group of people who are like psychotic zealots and, and he kind of can't say you guys are fucked. I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, uh, yes, sure. Okay. <laughs> and they're going to try to spin that into, oh my God, is Danny going to do something bad? That's where the mom comes back. When Danny might do something bad, we'll get to there. So, what ends up happening in that scene? Nothing, really, right? I don't know if this is about that scene. I wrote, wow, this is a long scene, and the music is making it seem innocent, and it is not. Oh, is it the makeout session? Oh, yes! Oh, yeah, there it goes on. There is a very long makeout scene. Forever, and it really sexualizes the girl. You feel better? <laughs> yeah. A lot better? Yeah, I feel better. 
good. Because if you can catch me, you can have me. Very sexualized. Like they take off her top and he he brushes down her chest. And it goes on for a very long time. And we're just watching these two kids make out until eventually she rolls over onto something. And she's like, what's this? It's a hand. (laughs) She freaks out. I don't remember her finding a hand. Yes. She finds a hand. I can't remember whose it is. Meanwhile, meanwhile, okay, so there's a bunch of things happening at the same time. Yeah, well, and the next thing is great. We learn about the whole toxic mold yes. so theory. Garrett and Red Bear are going together. Uh, well, are they run into each other because they're both investigating or something like that? And they find the corn, Hemingford's huge stock of corn that is infected with this fungus. Like, what is going on? You can't sell any of this. But they are. Why are are. they keeping it? Oh, they're keeping it from the last harvest to mix it in with the current harvest and try to sell it off like nothing's wrong. Those evil adults. And so the sheriff shows up. They're like, hey, sheriff, we got something to share with you. And he's like, oh, I know all about it. And now I get to kill you two. And so there's that going on. Also going on is Micah and the children of the corn are driving a remote control car. Yes. Around the 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 main street. Mrs. Where West. Mrs. West is riding around in her motorized wheelchair. And nobody notices. He nobody notices. Micah switches like two switches. He slides them on his remote control, and now all of a sudden it controls her wheelchair for no good goddamn reason. Yeah, no reason at all. And they drive her right into traffic where she's hit by a car and dies. Yes, it is. I, I wrote. I, <laughs> 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 Don't you think you can scare me, you little punk? Uh oh, he has control of her wheelchair for some reason. <laughs> oh God, no one's helping her. Oh my God, her wheelchair just got hit by a truck. Oh my God, <laughs> it, it, amazing, amazing, uh, amazing, incredible, and so much fun. And then I wrote, the soldiers of the Lord are ready to march. I think somebody says that. I, I think at this point, Micah. So this is where some storylines converge here. Micah is getting ready to march on Hemingford and kill all the adults. So they're going to prepare for that. They have kidnapped both Lacey and Angela, Micah's foster mom, and have strapped them into these corn contraptions. And he is going to trust Danny to kill them. He hands him a big machete and is like, kill them. Show your loyalty to us. It's like, dude, he like he's he's obviously not into this and you are just initiating him. And this is how you do it. Also, across town or something. No, on the other side of this cornfield, the same cornfield. Frank Redbear and John Garrett are being tied up by the sheriff and they're like, you can't get away with this. And he's like, of course I can. I'm the sheriff. I'm going to be the one investigating it. Of course I'm going to get away with this. This is awesome. Like, he's totally getting a kick out of this. Oh, yeah. And is that when he says kind of like a big Cuisinart, ain't it? Yes. They got this big, like, corn thresher thing that cuts all the corn down. Oh, my God. I forgot. I totally, 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 totally forgot. Before the sacrifices happen and before Danny gets involved... All the adults are having a meeting 
about what to do with this situation with all the kids the 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 doctor's dead west is dead her sister's dead and now there's this news reporter who's on this corn thing and they're all worried and then they realize that outside of this building all the kids have gathered and then they set the fucking house on fire yes they're lighting the place on fire. And the priest is trying to talk the kids down. Come, children. Yes. You know? <laughs> the sweet children are lighting the house on fire. Perhaps we should ask the children to leave. What? The children are here. Please children are here. Control yourself. The sweet children of Gatlin have chained the door. What? Huh? All right, children, the prank's over. Open the door. But so yeah, he's really funny. I completely forgot that that happened. Yeah, and Micah tells Danny to take out their their heart and tongue. Yeah, this is back at Lacey and Angela when they're all tied up. But I love that he tells him take out her heart and her tongue. But what does he give him? A giant machete. Yes. Uh huh. Not exactly the best tools. Not at all. So back at Red Bear and Garrett. The sheriff had left previously. He ended up dying in the house, right? So he just set this thresher on autopilot or whatever, and it's just going. It's heading towards them, and they're tied to a piece of rebar that's stuck into the ground, and they end up shaking it loose and getting out of the way just in time. Ah. So as this whole ceremony's going on, and they're going to cut out the heart and tongue of Lacey and Angela, oh, my God, is Danny going to do it? Now, Danny, he calls for it. There's like a storm or something happening. Yes, the storm uh-huh. is coming. The same storm that we saw in the first movie. And that's when the chick goes, Danny, I love you. Please. It's the light from the corn. He's coming. No, Danny. He calls for it. We are one. We are one. We are Remember, you're supposed to get me out of this shithole. <laughs> and he does end up saving them. It's taken straight out of legend when he, you think he's going to kill the unicorn. Yeah. And uh-huh. spoilers for legend, he doesn't. <laughs> um, but he's in a lot of trouble because they're all outnumbered. Well, this is when they yell, kill the Outlanders. Yes. <laughs> I, is it Mordecai or Micah who says that? I have no I think it's idea. Micah who says that. Kill the so we get that line in here, but it's totally unearned. And I love how unearned it is because it is stupid. <laughs> and it's great. And so in come Garrett and Red Bear on this giant machine to they break up the party. Get him with a bow and arrow. They get Red Bear in the side with the bow and arrow. <laughs> and and all everything's bad. Garrett's trying to defend his son gets and the love of his life. Yeah, somebody gets speared. I don't know if it's Mordecai or whatever. <laughs> Micah is giving this speech about how he's going to take them all down or whatever. And he's conveniently standing in front of this thresher or whatever the machine is called. 
and he starts to get this demon because I guess he got possessed partially by the demon like Isaac did. Yes. And he starts to talk like him and he starts to give this whole demon speech and his voice changes and Red Bear's not dead yet. He lives long enough to turn the Thresher back on and because Micah's too into his fucking speech, he doesn't realize that this thing is creeping up on him and it snags his jacket. Well, I love that right before that, right before anything happens, he says, did you think I would allow you to escape? (laughs) Right when this happens. And he gets threshered. There's all these face effects that happen. Because the demon abandons him just like in Bly Manor, like, oh, fuck, I'm out of here. Yes. So good. And he just has to die. Can this he help kid. me? Yeah, he just shouts out. It's like, nope, this little kid gets chewed up by this thresher. Please, Tanny, you're my friend. <laughs> Somebody help me! Tanny, please! Oh my God, Tanny, come on! Please, Tanny, you're my friend. Tanny, get the girls and get out of here! So, Red Bear dies, and Lacey and Angela... And Danny and Garrett all survive. All the white people survive. Yep. But hey, we get a Native American spirit now. Oh my God. He comes and he sees the drawings on the rock about the kids. And then does he cross it out when it doesn't come true or something like that? He interacts with it and then he prances away. And that's the end of the fucking movie. Yes. This movie is so strange, guys. It is so strange. So funny. It's I was so good. surprised. I thought it was just going to be bad. I and it was, it was bad. Garbage. Don't get me wrong. It was bad. But in all the best ways. In, in beautiful ways. It's, it's not a good movie, but it was fun to watch. Yes. I, re- I, I, I really enjoyed it. I hope that three is as much fun. I, I can't imagine it's going to be. I can't imagine it's going to be. Well, I am enjoying this series so far. Yes, very much so. Can't wait to get to number three and see it just does not live up to number two. Oh. So with that in mind, Kelsey, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? Oh, I'm sure it's awful. It, is there are it only like, nine reviews, so there's no consensus. What is it, like 23? 22. Oh, my God. Yes, 22 on Rotten Tomatoes and 18 on Metacritic, which is nuts. That is a crazy low Metacritic score. Because remember, it averages review scores. And the average score is lower than the percentage of, of reviewers that liked it. <laughs> like, So the people that didn't like it fucking hated it. And I get it. I totally understand. 100%. Now, keeping in mind... That the original had a Rotten Tomatoes of 36 when we reviewed it. You gave it an 85 and I gave it an 80. You see, people, we don't hate movies. (laughs) We love some of these movies. Keeping that in mind, what would you give this one? 69, dudes. So funny. I was going to give it a 70. I already had written down 70. Like, okay, it's no Children of the Corn, which is just great. But... I was so happy that I ended up having a blast watching this movie. This movie is awful, but I I love it. <laughs> I love it a lot. Get yourself inebriated, have some pizza, and watch this movie. If you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> well, that is Children of the Corn 2, Final Sacrifice. 
It was originally going to be called Deadly Harvest. Which they should have gone with. So instead they used Harvest in the third one, because Children of the Corn Part 3 is called Urban Harvest. Because just like every horror franchise that gets a little silly, they gotta go to the hood. Yes. So Urban Harvest is coming up next. But that is Final Sacrifice in the second movie in the franchise. Before we get to the next movie, Kelsey, horror trivia. This 1982 film contained a scene where a young boy is dragged under his bed by his clown doll that comes to life. Poltergeist. That is correct. We just recently watched it for no good reason. We just like, let's watch Poltergeist. I think it's <laughs> great. That's why. It's one of Kelsey's favorite movies, let alone horror movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's another one that has some problems, but you just don't care because it's so good. Mm-hmm. You only move the headstone. <laughs> Why? <laughs> okay, that's what I always thought he was saying. No, yeah, the closed captioning. What does closed it say? Closed captioning says lies. Oh, lies, lies, yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> I guess lies make sense. Lies but I always thought sense? he said why. I always thought he said well, why. Well, because you, you lied. You said you moved the cemetery, but you only moved the headstones. So, oh, God. The ending of that movie is awesome. Love it. And the dude's just standing there shocked. <laughs> okay, Kelsey. What is the name of the death cat at the Rivington House Hospice Facility in Dr. Sleep? You've read the book. You've seen the movie twice. I'm not surprised you don't know, but. They say it like once in the in movie. In the movie that he says it once. And he says the nickname of it. I don't know. The nickname is Azzy. Azzy. Which is short for Azrael. Yes. The angel of death who escorts souls to the afterlife. Yes. Well, that leads us right into the movie, Dr. Sleep from 2019, written and directed by Mike Flanagan, who has impressed us over and over again. Done tons of stuff that we haven't even talked about on the show, but he's also done stuff we've covered on the show like Hush, which is really, really good. He's adapted Stephen King in the past. Gerald's Game. We haven't seen that. We haven't seen it. Can you believe that? We haven't seen it. It's free. It's on Netflix. We haven't seen it. But we have seen Dr. Sleep. Of course, based on the sequel novel by Stephen King. He actually wrote a sequel because apparently people asked him what happened to Danny. And he used to say, jokingly, ah, he married the girl from Firestarter. And then people started asking him so much that he actually started wondering, what what would have happened to Danny? Well, he probably would have had a really bad drinking problem with <laughs> all the, the ghosts. And then, like, that led it from one thing into another. And he ended up writing Dr. Sleep. It stars Ewan McGregor, Rebecca Ferguson, Kylie Curran, and Cliff Curtis. What is Dr. Sleep about, Kelsey? It's about Danny from the original The Shining as an adult, his life is interrupted by another girl who also has the shining, Abra. Her name is fucking Abra. <laughs> Apparently that had nothing to do with Abracadabra. With Abra it was just like a great coincidence and he just like, all right, fine, I'll go with it. He liked the name Abra. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, who knows if that's actually true or not. <laughs> But so his Danny's life is interrupted by Abra, who 
introduces him to a group of people who eat children who have the Shining, and he and Abra decide to fight them. They're called the True Knot. Yes. And they eat the Shining, which they call... Steam. Steam. Which is going to wrap back around in a very clever way to the ending of the Shining book that we didn't get in the Shining movie. Like... uh, we, we said in the last episode when we said we were going to watch this movie that we were surprised at how well this movie walked the tightrope between the novel and Kubrick's film. And it really does a fantastic job in some really clever ways. The movie is free if you're an HBO Max subscriber. You can't rent it anywhere. You can buy it for $15 on the usual biggies or $17 on Redbox or $20 on Fandango for some reason. If you get your movies through Fandango and nowhere else, should people watch Dr. Sleep? Yes. Yes. Yes, you should. Yes. I don't think you even need to be a fan to, to enjoy it. Yeah. Like I said, we were surprised at how well it walked that tightrope, but... Also, having watched it a second time, I enjoyed it even more. Mm-hmm. The last act is a bunch of fan service for the movie, but it's okay because it like explains everything mm-hmm. in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I really, really appreciated that, that it wasn't just fan service. And Mike Flanagan had to convince Stephen King to make a movie adaptation of Dr. Sleep and incorporate the Kubrick version. Because you couldn't not do that. Right. You couldn't make a sequel because... But the solution is then just don't make the movie. Right. He still had to convince King that what he could do would do it well. And it obviously did. So, yeah. No, I think... It doesn't have the ending of the book, which I maybe prefer. There's a few... I would say major differences, but not really. It's the ending. So, like, I would say even the meaning that you get out of this ending, we were we were um, looking up, like, some of the differences between the two because it's been a while since we've read the book. And somebody was arguing, oh, man, I really like the original ending in the book. And, you know, it just means so much because of this, that, and the other thing. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, no, actually, the ending of the book of the movie is a lot more poignant than the ending of the book. I got to say it's better than the book's ending in my mind. But it only works because of what happened in the movie. In the Kubrick movie. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly right. So that's what I'm saying. There's like spinning plates here and it's remarkable just how well it's pulled off. It's not a all time great movie or anything, but I really, really like it. So yeah, you should, you should watch it, right? Yes. You could take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2019's Doctor Sleep. When I was a kid, there was a place. A dark place. They closed it down and let it rot. But the things that lived there... They come back. You can hear me. You're magic. Like me. I don't know about magic. I always called it the shining. 
world is a hungry place. A dangerous place. These people, they hurt people like us. These are the devils. They'll eat what shines. And they've noticed that little girl. Wow. Hi there. They're coming. Yes, you run, dear. And then I will find you. And you will scream for years. Come play with us forever and ever. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does Dr. Sleep begin? With the music from the original Shining film. Bom, 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 bom. That one. <laughs> yes. And we see the girl from The Haunting of Hill House. The little girl, yeah. Uh-huh. The little twin sister. Yeah. That grows up to be Big, sis- big Nell. Big Nell? <laughs> Adult Nell. Adult Nell, yeah. Okay. Little Nell. Go ahead. <laughs> And she is about to die. It's very, very sad. Yep. She is filled with what the true knot calls steam, but what we have come to know it as the shining. The shining. Which, when you think about it as a thing, not an ability, but like as a noun, the shining doesn't make any fucking sense. Right, but... It's your shine, which is stupid. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's revealing, right? Like shining, you could say metaphorically speaking, is you're giving off this aura. Or this steam. No. See, the steam is the actual physical thing that escapes your body when you're in pain or fear. That's why they call it, they name it, for the way they experience it. They don't experience it predominantly through the way that we've always seen it expressed. But remember that in the original book, they all have powers. Yes. So. But but that's not how they predominantly interact with this. Yeah. It's not through their own powers. They especially don't really care about the powers of the people they kill, only those that they can convert. So the way they interact with it is through consuming this steam, and so they call it steam. Whereas Scatman Carruthers and his mom, grandma, who called it The Shining, she's just, you know, speaking about it metaphorically. Because the way she experiences it is like, you know, this sort of like extra sensory perception. And so it's a shine you give off that no one can see, basically. So she comes upon Rose the Hat, played by... Rebecca Ferguson. Do we know her from anything? Sure. Um, I think she's the wife in the Mission Impossible movies. That's the same woman? It's amazing what a hat and an accent can do to you. The newer Mission Impossible movies. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. I see it now in my head, but like... Yeah, a haircut, a hat, 
and an accent will change you completely. Yep. Because she has a very light hint of an Irish accent. But yes, Rose the Hat. So-called because she's always wearing a hat. Yes. <laughs> Which I don't remember if that plays more of a role in the book or not. It's been such a long time since we read it. Yeah. I'm sure Basically since reason. it came out, right? It came out, your mom got it for you, and then... No, I we... got it for my mom. Oh, right. And then we got it on Audible. We listened to it. And that one dude from Halloween, the sheriff from Halloween, is the narrator. <laughs> but so she entices this little girl to come... Because this little girl has abilities. And she's like, oh, I have abilities too. And she shows her and you're not alone, but you're actually very alone and we going to eat you. Yes, they make them very, very creepy. Like the way that they have them slowly appear uh-huh. kind of out of nowhere. It, it is, is creepy. It is really creepy. We watched a review of this after we watched it because... We wanted to see the comparison between the book and the film because it had been so long since we read it. And the reviewer mentioned in the book, they dress like their grandparents. Yeah, so as to be innocuous. Yes. And while I agree that that is a great plot point in the books, Uh while I totally agree, he asked why would they do this? And it's like, well, the answer is obvious. Because this looks way cooler to have them all look like gypsies. It looks way cooler. Also, we never see them really interacting with the rest of society except for the one time that Rose goes into a supermarket. And she looks kind of normal. So Minus the hat. Yeah, but whatever. You saw somebody wearing a hat, you'd be like, oh, cool hat. You know (laughs) what I mean? Like, you wouldn't think anything of it. So it's not a concern. Them needing to blend into, into society is not a plot point in this movie. So... Why would they be dressing like that? Like, you'd have to explain that, I think. If they were all dressed like grandparents, you'd have to explain why that is. And the movie's already two and a half hours long. Yes. Like, we don't need a three-hour version of this movie. (laughs) But so, Rose explains that the special people in the world are the ones that taste the best. Yeah. The stronger you are, and then also... Inflicting pain on somebody also makes it sweeter. Very similar to Pennywise. Yes, very similar to Pennywise. Yeah, that's a good point. After that introduction, we get a flashback to Danny's childhood in the hotel, the Overlook. Very good recreation. They had to recreate it all, obviously. You just can't recreate people. Yeah, but I thought they did a very good job. I guess, but it's just, it's so, like, immediately I was like, something's wrong with this, and we immediately thought it was the trike, I mean, the the big wheel. Yeah. But what we discovered after looking at them side by side is that, no, it's the same exact bike, it's literally just how the different kid's a little the kid bigger looks. And, yeah. It completely changes... The look of it. Yeah, but that, the way they got the shots and they, yes, everything the else cam is fantastic. And, you know, the angle of him looking at the door like it's not. And that's the thing is it's not 100 percent perfect, but it's evocative enough to where you're like, yep, that's the thing, <laughs> you know. So we get a recreation of 
his mother saving him, pushing him out the window. And I thought she did a pretty good job. I thought she could have been a I little she bit did more a, manic. I thought she did a very good job. She looked just like her. That was crazy. So then we get to see Danny after the Overlook. Yeah, as a kid. As a kid that we didn't get to see before. Mm -hmm. Now, remember everybody that in the original novel, Dick Halloran survived. And so how do you get the guidance, the further guidance post-Shining of Dick Halloran, if Dick Halloran's dead? You turn him into a ghost. And it works. It 100% works. Yes. I mean, The Shining is all about seeing ghosts. True that. But so yeah, Dick Halloran brings him out of his whole Funk. not talking thing. Yeah, he wasn't talking to anybody. Uh, and he teaches him a trick because the ghosts have been, the ghosts of the Overlook have been traveling with him. They latched onto him. And so he sees them from time to time, even though they moved to Florida specifically so they'd never see the snow again. Yes. He teaches him the trick of. Just imagine this box, which we, of course, since he's a ghost, the box doesn't exist either. Uh, but Im imagine it, get to know it very well, every intimate detail. And the next time you see them, just put them in this box, like mentally, and then lock it up and never open it. And that's how you'll protect yourself from them. They'll always be with you. You can't do anything about that. But you can prevent them from harming you. And it kind of, he does this. We see him close the bathroom door on the bathtub, bathtub lady. lady. Yeah. But we get the impression that he does this with all of the ghosts, and that will be confirmed later. We also get kind of the idea that it takes this sort of like consistent effort that eventually over time becomes second nature. And so he doesn't really use his shine all that much or all that strongly anymore. Um, well, he drinks to suppress it. And then eventually, yes, he starts drinking. But it, there's always this sort of low-level effort that eventually becomes secondhand, like breathing. You know, you're breathing the entire time. You're not even thinking about it. It's sort of like that, that he just needs to expend some shining effort keeping these things closed. Mm -hmm. And then he drinks to numb the rest of it. Yes. And then we get the really, really awful scene, which is straight out of the book. The fight scene first. He beats that guy up in the bar. Well, no, he wakes up. That's the and night. remembers oh, the night yeah, in yeah, flashbacks. Yeah. Uh -huh. So we get this awful scene that's straight out of the book. It's a little bit different, but that's okay. Yeah. There's, there's more to it in the book. But of course there is. Mm-hmm. He wakes up next to a woman who has clearly vomited. In her sleep. In yeah. her sleep. Uh -huh. Quickly, over a series of flashbacks, remembers the previous evening where he got into a bar fight, where he yelled, take your medicine. Take your medicine, yep. Okay, you're gonna take Straight out of the original the, novel. Which didn't come out in the movie. They cut all that. Well, it's in... The TV movie. It is, yeah. <laughs> We're not talking about that. <laughs> they do a lot of coke. Yeah. And he decides to steal her money because he's angry that she used his money for coke, even though I'm pretty sure he did the coke too. 
yeah, absolutely. But the point is, is that she wasn't supposed to use his money for it. She stole it from me. And yeah, he's he's a total, he's a hypocrite. He's a bad guy at this point. He has he is at rock bottom. And he's going to make a decision here that fucking sucks. And I honestly think that the movie handles it much better than the book did. So what happens is he's gonna decide he looks through her purse and finds money. It's like, oh great. Yeah, so she did steal for me to buy this Coke. And it wasn't my Coke. So he's gonna take the money from her and just as he's about to leave he gets into a fight with dick dick appears and is like come on danny doc Doc. come on doc you're not really gonna steal from her are you and he's like she stole from me to buy the coke you you've hit rock bottom danny Mm -hmm. and uh and he's just about to leave when he hears a toddler his little baby who can just barely stand up he's like oh fuck And what he ends up doing is he ends up picking up the baby, leaving the baby on the bed, grabbing a bag of chips from the living room, opening it up and leaving it next to the baby, and then leaving. And what ends up happening as a result of this is way more fucked up, I think. And you like that better? Yes. Danny is fucked at this point. He, he needs to be at rock bottom. How is he going to feel guilt? So, okay, so what ends up happening is he gets he gets a nightmare about them that we assume is reality where her and her baby appear in front of him and they're dead. And it's suggested very strongly that she died. She never woke up. And the baby started crying. And since everyone was used to the baby crying... The baby starved to death. And that's his fault. Just like in Breaking Bad, when he didn't do anything to help the girlfriend, when he could have saved her life, he's responsible for her death at that point. I would argue that Breaking Bad, he's far more at fault than Danny is here. Yeah, except this involves a baby. And he didn't even check to wake her up. He left a bag of chips. Is my point. And in the book, the baby is like beaten to death by her boyfriend who's mad because he took the money or something like that. Like it's it's a couple of steps removed from his direct responsibility. That's, I think, why it's more effective. He's more immediately responsible for what happened to these people. And it seems much more horrific as tragic as the book version is. So I like this because it's going to be important that Danny needs redeeming. Danny is a terrible person at this point because he has demons and somewhat literal ones. Somewhat? Well, they're not demons, they're ghosts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference. Yes, we noticed, everybody, that Ewan McGregor just can't seem to get away from traumatic experiences with babies. Dying babies, right? Because doesn't the baby die in... Uh, yes. Yeah, uh-huh. And then, yeah, crawls Train spotting, after him yeah, uh-huh. ceiling. When he's trying to get clean and he's hallucinating and, yeah, uh-huh. Again, trying to get clean. Yeah. <laughs> Addiction, man. No good. 
that's like where Ewan McGregor got like his his fame Damn was from straight. Trainspotting, right? Damn straight. Then we get to meet Snakebite Andy, who plays a much bigger role in the book, but it does not matter here. We are not exploring each and every character like he does in the book. So in the book, he explores this group. And There's they have a lot more of them, yeah. and they all have their own stories. But it's not important to the core story, which they never are. It's like in The Stand. As much as I love how good he is at developing these rich characters, when you get down to it, they're not important to the core plot. Well, I think it works for a book when you have 800 pages to tell a story. Mm-hmm. When you have two and a half hours to tell a story, cut that shit. Combine those characters. Do whatever you can to communicate the same ideas in ways that the book is incapable of, like through visuals. But you have this responsibility to do it faster. But so she is introduced as a very important character because she has this ability to, in the book, put people to sleep, but in the film, make them do whatever she wants them to do. Another thing which I think makes a lot more sense in the movie, then the book, because now you're just confusing the whole sleep thing. The The element of Dr. Sleep is such a minor plot point. I'm not saying a minor theme point, but a minor plot point that now we're going to muddy the waters by making another character literally put people to sleep. It confuses things a little bit. When you have, again, 800 pages to tell that story, it's a lot easier to do that. But if we were that to then make that in this short movie, it would be a little bit confusing. Especially since they only use the term Dr. Sleep once in the entire movie. Yeah, exactly. And you feel like they told you that only because it's the title. Yes, uh uh-huh, to explain why the movie's called that. But so, in the film, they decide to make her a 15-year-old girl who fishes for... Pedophiles. Pedophiles, and then uh, doesn't murder them, but mugs them and marks them, much the same as in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, or Inglorious Bastards, you know, where they don't kill you, but they will leave you with a mark of your shame within society, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. You'll know if you got this snakebite mark on your face, that person's a pedophile. Yes. So they make her more, in the book, she's in her 30s. So, like, it's more just that she's just getting it married men mm-hmm. for cheating on their wives, which I know is not a good thing. Right. But, but like, it's, it's not, not serious. It's yeah. not pedophilia. Uh-huh. You know? So they make her more likable, I guess, in this. Righteous. Yeah. And they make it more that she's... Again, is she making the choice to join or is she being manipulated to join? Mm. Does the fact that they don't tell her the fine print matter to you? Is it still her choice? Yes, I think it's a very good question that they didn't tell her the fine print. Does that matter? Does that affect your opinion of Snakebite Andy? That's a very good point. But I, I make the argument sort of parallel to that, that... We are intentionally supposed to be comparing Snake by Andy to Abra. Yeah. She's very similar to Abra. A young girl with the shining. And we're going to learn 
about the choices that these two young women make and different things happen as a result. And I think that's important thematically to what the story's telling. And so the fact that that they make her young is important to support the Abra connection. But we can all we also know that Danny went through kind of the same shit, different literal experiences, but being a young kid with this ability, etc. And the choices he made were completely different. He hurt himself and was responsible indirectly for bad things happening. You see what I'm saying? Like, we're going to learn about the decisions you make and what you do now that you have this power is very important to what type of person you are. Yeah, but it doesn't really work with the true knot because they would probably eat her. But she's useful. Right, but they're all useful. The only reason they don't eat adults is because kids taste better. Again, very similar to Pennywise. Sure. I don't think that that is relevant, though. I'm saying that her being 15 doesn't work with the true knot. They would have eaten her. Right, but her ability is so important. Like, she says that. I would have eaten her, or I would eat her, or I would have eaten you, or whoever it is that she's talking about. You know, we would have just killed her and taken her steam. But because her ability is so important, they need to recruit her instead. And if they can't recruit her, then they'll eat her. But for whatever reason, Rose the Hat is immune to her abilities. Rose has nebulous powers. We don't really know exactly what her powers are, but she is the strongest one in the knot. Even though I, I mean, like, is she older than Grandpa Flick? I don't know. Maybe. She obviously prioritizes herself in getting the steam. Mm-hmm. So maybe she's older and looks younger because of it. Well, he was also probably way older when he got turned. Yeah. Than she was. And that affects it because it's not that you can never die. It's that you age very, very slowly. Yeah. Okay. So we talk about the turning. The turning is where you consume steam for the first time. And that changes you as somebody with the shining. It's like a vampire. Exactly like a vampire. You are now changed. You'll live basically forever, but you need to feed in order to prevent yourself from shriveling and dying. Now you have this hunger that you need to fulfill for the rest of your almost immortal life. Mm -hmm. Forever and ever. Yes, forever and ever. (laughs) Then we are introduced to Abra. Yes, that's right. Her name is Abra, and they do make the joke of Abracadabra. And she really likes magic. Yes, I can do that. And then the dick magician is like... (laughs) Yeah, that's nice, kid. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So she proves that she can do it, and she's all proud of it, but her parents are freaked out. The way she proves it is by putting all the silverware in the ceiling, like letting it hang from the ceiling, and then they all freak out when it all falls. Well, they are freaked out, so she's upset, so they Uh fall. Yeah, and it scares them. Like, I mean, it's like a jump scare for them. And there's like a sonic boom of power that everybody can feel. Yeah, but the fact of the matter is, is her parents cannot deny that she has a power and they just have no idea what to do about it. Yes. And the thing is, is that like they kind of like to use it sometimes, but they're also afraid of it. 
And so Yeah, she, she asks her, like, is grandma gonna be okay or whatever? So Abra walks this tightrope of trying to appease but also not frighten her parents. Exactly, yeah. Meanwhile, Danny has hopped on a bus. He's decided to kick his drug and alcohol habit. The realization that he likely is responsible for the death of a woman and her baby is what kind of puts him over the edge. And he decides, I got to go somewhere else. I got to get clean. And he just gets on a bus to nowhere. I believe to Maine, possibly? Something like that. Yeah. (laughs) New Hampshire, Vermont. Oh, is it New Hampshire? I think it's Maybe. Somewhere. It's in New England. Probably Maine. (laughs) (laughs) Where he he gets off and he sees a tiny town. (laughs) Yes. Which, if you remember The Shining, there is a tiny version of the hotel. Well, a tiny version of the hedge maze. Talking about the book. <laughs> Whatever. So remember, there's a toy version of it that Danny plays in. I, I vaguely. It's been so long since I've read that book. It's, it's also been, it's also in the TV movie. It's been since before we last saw the TV movie. Yeah, so it's been a while. But he's fascinated by this tiny town. It's just basically this park in the middle of a downtown area of a small, small town, like a Main Street style town. That all the kids help take care of. All the kids love. And he meets the guy that kind of runs this place, who ends up becoming his really good friend, is Billy Freeman. Yes, the perfect man. Oh, the perfect man. He's also a combination of some characters from the book, but don't worry about it. Yeah, he is perfect. He is this very kind man who also had an addiction problem, recognizes this in Danny, sees it in his eyes, he has that look, takes it upon himself to help this man get clean, right? Or stay clean, rather. He finds him a place to live in this lady's attic uh, loft space, and he gives him a job at Tiny Town, a part-time job at least, and he takes him to AA meetings. We get a scene with... This other guy who I guess is probably his sponsor? I can't remember. The doctor? Yeah. Dr. John, played by Bruce Greenwood. Who we know from. Oh, he's in Gerald's game. He is. He's also um, Captain Pike from the Star Trek movies. The new Star Trek movies. Oh, yes, yes, yes. He's been in a lot of other things. Okay. So we get this scene with him where Danny... (laughs) proves that he has the shining by telling him where he left his watch he doesn't prove he's not trying to prove anything and he makes no claims he just sees him fiddling with his wrist and when he shakes his hand he sees that he left the wrist uh in outside the operating room when he was washing his hands because the dude's a doctor and he tells him like hey you know what just i saw you with the wrist check on the place and uh, just just trust me just look and the guy's like what all right, see ya. You know, and he walks away. He's not trying to prove anything. No, I know he's, trying he's not to help trying to out. prove it. I'm just saying it's a weird thing to do. Yeah, he, yeah. He basically uh, shows that he's psychic. Yes. Uh huh. Which, after all these years of not using it, that's what he <laughs> zones in on. Well, when he stops drinking, it just happens. I guess he shook his hand, and it happened. So Dr. John sits him down in the same office that his dad interviewed in. Yes. Not literally in the sense of the story, but design-wise, aesthetically, it's the same office 
where Jack Nicholson got his interview to be the caretaker of the Overlook, asks him, hey, you have some orderly experience? Great. I work part-time. I volunteer at this hospice facility, and it's really hard to find or keep orderlies. I can give you a job there. Yes, and he asks him, do dying people bother you? And what is his answer? No. We're all dying. The world is one big hospice with fresh air. Hmm. Which is funny because they basically cut right after that to a scene where Snake by Andy discovers that she just died, basically, yeah. when they turned her. And she tells her that you'll feel better when you eat, because she wakes up, like, on a beach, uh-huh. and they're all just staring at her, which is super weird. She's like, am I still human? And she goes, do you even care? Yeah. Which I guess she doesn't. That's an important question, because the answer is no. She doesn't care. But I mean, what can she do about it now? Right. No, no, very much. She was taken advantage of, but she still had decisions to make. And she did. So as Chris said, Danny is offered the job at the at the hospice center. Mm-hmm. And that is where we get to meet Asriel, which is, I wrote down the name. It's she in asked your me, notes. It's in my notes <laughs> that you asked me for, and I could not come up with it, and it's in my notes. I figured it would be. Mm-hmm. And we find that this cat, Asriel, comforts the dying. Danny starts, he, be, he gets dubbed Dr. Sleep because he's there to help people go to sleep and go to death. Yeah, well, because when they ask him what's it like, and he says, don't worry, it's not bad, it's just like falling asleep. But it's a deeper, more satisfying sleep. That's the way he describes it to these people that are dying. So the dynamic is, is that as he comes and sits at the foot of the bed of somebody who's about to die, and everyone in the facility knows it, but it always seems to be on Danny's shift. And then he comes in to see what Azrael's doing, and then he sits and he spends the night with the person that's dying, comforts them, makes them feel better using his shine, but also his insight. And And then they die. And it's especially awful when you discover at the end what he sees when he looks at dead people. The flies? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When he sees people who are dying, he sees flies all over their faces. And later on, he'll describe what he saw in his mom when she was dying. Mm Mm-hmm. Very, very sad. But that's where he gets the moniker Dr. Sleep. That's the whole reason this is called Dr. Sleep, and it's not plot-wise important to the story at all, which is interesting. They spend a lot more time in the book on it, though, and so maybe it feels more important. But thematically, what does it have to do? I guess it's just about him using his shine for good? Yes. It's him... Well, also, you have to remember that in the book, there's other characters that he deals with. There's one orderly who's a dick there that he yeah. puts in his place. There's another orderly who he's friends with. and Right, like they spend whole... more time on it, but yes. it doesn't actually impact the overall main plot of the movie at all. I suppose not. But that's not the reason why it's important. After this, Abra will begin a dialogue with Danny via a chalkboard wall. 
I can't even remember if that's how they do it in the novel or not. But they talk to each other. Yes, yeah. they they communicate. I have I don't remember how she discovers him. They don't get into it in the film. She doesn't I don't think knows she she's doing it, but she can she can put her feelers out there and sense other people that have this. And so she says hi to him and they only really communicate for the most part via the words on the wall. She sometimes sends words his way. He never sends words her way. He writes it on the wall. He doesn't speak high using the shine. Right. And we discover that eight years have passed. And we get this good monologue from Ewan McGregor all about his drinking days and why he thinks he did it because it was the only way that he could connect to his father. Yeah, it's his speech when he gets his new chip. Mm-hmm, for eight years. And he dedicates the chip to Jack Torrance. And Chris doesn't care that Jack is really not a character in this film, uh, because he believes that this is not Jack Torrance's story. We already got that. But unfortunately, Jack Torrance's story was stolen from the public. Sure. But the the point is, is that this needs to be a sequel to the first Shining movie. And you can't just say, well, this happened in the Shining book, so... You right, can't- but there were other ways they could have worked around it for a better compromise, I feel. I think it is much, 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 much more important for this movie that they commit to the fact that Jack Torrance died a terrible person. That's very important to the theme of this movie. And you cannot whitewash his legacy... It doesn't make any sense for him to show up as a redeemed spirit or have a redeemed character in the movie, this movie, because he never got redeemed at the end of the of the first story like he did in the book. If the movie ended like the book did, then yes, fine. It could be partially Jack's story. But Jack died a villain in that story, and that's what his legacy is. That sucks. Well, it's important in making Danny who he is. What we find is that Danny has empathy. And that's important to Danny's character. It's not the only reason that it's important that Jack's a villain, but it's one of the reasons. Cut to the true knot. And Crow, uh, basically the lover. Yeah, basically the lover of Rose the Hat, although they don't say that in the film. This is Zon McLarnon, but they imply it. Heavily. They're like partners. Yes. He's like her lieutenant, but it's, it's, they love each other. Yes. And he comes to her and he's like, hey, we need to eat steam. We're all not, we're all doing pretty poorly out there. And she's like, what are you talking about? It's only been six months. And he's like, yeah, but unfortunately, the the steam that we've been eating lately has gotten weaker and weaker, and there's less and less of it. Mm-hmm. Which would make you think that they would realize that... This isn't sustainable? Yes. Yeah. But they don't. So, he convinces her that they need to eat more of this steam, which I guess... Okay, so they have canisters of it, which I understand. And they save some of it, which I understand. Mm -hmm. It's just odd to me that 
She saves a little bit of a ton of them. They have different flavors. That's a good point. I have more than one whiskey on that wall over there. It's <laughs> a good point. But so they are going after their next big hit, which is going to be a little boy who plays baseball. Yep. Did you get the impression, I can't remember if this is in the book or not, that at one point they were looking for Danny when he was a kid? Or maybe even as he was an adult, and then when he shut down and suppressed all of his abilities, that they couldn't find him anymore? Is that a plot line that I'm making up? Yeah, because I think he he suppressed it immediately after he left the Overlook, as much as he could. Right, I just mean, in general, I got the feeling like, oh yeah, there was this big shine and we were hunting for it, and then all of a sudden it just disappeared. I don't remember that, but it might have been. Yeah, I could be totally making that up. It'd be pretty interesting. But so they go after this little boy, and it's very, very sad. Number 19. Yes, they they are especially cruel and make it painful because that makes it taste better, and it's very sad. And it's graphic. They don't like literally show you everything on screen, but you know exactly what's happening. And Jacob Tremblay, who plays this kid, oh, gee, you really believe that he's scared and he's in pain. Is he the kid from the room? He's the kid from the room, yeah. Yeah. He's very good at portraying very disturbing scenes. Yeah. And Abra is awakened by it because it's like he's screaming out into the further. <laughs> well, it's just like when Danny as a kid reached Dick in Florida. Yes. And so she wakes up and she feels his pain. And it's very, very terrible and, and very painful. She screams at them to stop and calls them monsters. Yeah. And she's so strong that Rose the Hat hears her and feels her Mm -hmm. and is like, holy shit, we need to go get that person. This is the big one. Yeah. That's a whale out there, East Coast and a girl, and we need to go. And so... Abra immediately goes to the library to look up any missing persons files she can, and she finds him, which is, I mean, well, she does have the power of the shine, and she's extremely good at it, so never mind. That would be easy for her to find. So then we get a very well-put-together scene. Now, some of these scenes, they go on a little longer than they need to, but they're just so beautiful. The scene of her... A room tilting and her going towards it with her hands out. Yeah, she's like holding onto the window frame. And it's yeah. it's just beautiful. It's really well done. There's Ooh. a couple of tilting room shots in this movie that are cool. Very impressive. And she falls into Rose the Hat, who is going grocery shopping. Yeah. And it's just so well done. All of a sudden she falls into it and she sees... Rose's hands. Uh-huh. And then when when she looks in the glass where the milk is, Rose can see her face and so like knows that she's there. And then when she tries to reach out and find her, Abra freaks out and the glass shatters and it tosses Rose halfway down the aisle. And gives her a nosebleed. Yeah, and gets her really excited. Very excited. 
I think that she must reach out to Danny here at some point because Danny gets very, very tense and upset and reaches out to Tony. And when Rose tells Crow about how excited she is about this guy, Crow is like, well, are you sure? I mean, about this girl. Crow is like, are you sure we don't want to take her into the true knot? Uh-huh. And she's like, absolutely not. We don't want anyone with that kind of power in our uh-huh. in our group. Which tells you something when you're in a leadership position because of your power. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> But yes, so Abra takes it upon herself to randomly show up at Danny's job. Tiny town. Yeah. She gets dropped off at school, and then she makes a sharp turn at the front entrance, then gets on a bus and tracks down Danny. (laughs) Which does not look good for Danny. No, that a little girl gets off a bus and shows up to talk to him. And he recognizes that. He's like, this is inappropriate. You (laughs) should never... God, we shouldn't be seen talking to each other like this. <laughs> but she goes, you're just you're, my Uncle Dan. Yeah, you're my Uncle Dan, which is interesting because in the book, she really is his niece. Yes, Jack had affairs. And An affair. Do not make Jack a worse character than he was. He had whatever. one affair. He had an affair. At the height of his alcoholism when he was teaching. His daughter is Abra's mom. That's in the book. So he is actually her uncle in the book. But in this, it's just like a fun name to get around how this seems weird that there's just this man with this little girl. Well, you're just my Uncle Dan. I'll just tell him you're my Uncle Dan. Which is also weird because she keeps calling him Uncle Dan. And I have an Uncle Dan in my life. (laughs) It's very weird. (laughs) But she tells him, here's what we can do. There is one person in the group who wore the little kid's glove. And if you can get me that glove, I can find that guy and we can track down the true knot. And he's like, no, absolutely not. Go home and stop doing this shit and hope they never find you. Yeah. Keep your head down. Try not to attract attention. Every single thing that you ever encounter because of your shine, because yes, he will tell her. She's like, oh, you're magic like me. And he says, I never called it magic. I always called it the shining. Yeah. He says, everything that you encounter with the shine, those things will come back to haunt you. So keep your head down and just stay safe. Mm -hmm. He's talking from experience. He gets one last visit from Dick that night. Yeah. Telling him that I'm here because it all comes around. You've got to take care of this kid now. Cause a wheel, which is a reference to the Dark Tower series. Yes. And we get a very, again, maybe a little long, but a very cool shot in the next scene. Oh, of Rose projecting herself across the country to find Abra. Mm -hmm. Finds her, gets in her mind, and then we see it's this room filled with all these filing cabinets. Which, if you've ever read or seen Dreamcatcher, it's very similar. Uh Uh-huh. She thinks, oh, I, I can find you. Let's look through these files and I can find out who you are and da-da-da-da-da. But Abra knew she was there. This was a trap. And as soon as she reveals herself, Abra slams Rose's hand in the filing cabinet, basically crippling her hand. Really yes. messing it up. And she, Abra, immediately starts looking, looking through, through her, her files. Yeah, uh-huh. 
And that is what motivates Rose to pull her hand out of this, even though it's ripping her skin Uh off. And she flies out through the window in a really cool effect and lands on the hood of the RV that she was meditating on and falls off of it. It's a really cool, like, sequence of actions. Yes. This movie is beautifully shot. Mm -hmm. Very well put together. And when she wakes up, what do they tell her is happening? Do you remember? Yeah, Grandpa Flick is dying. Cycling, as they call it. Yeah, uh-huh. And it's just so fascinating to me, because it's like you watch him cycle, and it just looks like this terrible, painful, awful death. And she says as much. She told Andy that dying hurts. Did she? Yeah. Or oh. somebody. We 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 learned through the text that dying hurts. I didn't rem- remember that. I, I mean, she was mad because she didn't know that turning would hurt. Yeah. She said, you said it didn't hurt. And she goes, well, are you still in pain? Right. But no, I think there's something specific about the cycling, too. Maybe I could be wrong. But whatever. My point is, it's like she watches him have this god-awful death. He says how frightened he is, how painful it is. Etc. And it's like, that's what you have to look forward to. Uh, but she gives him this speech. It's what makes her feel better, too. About he, when, he, when he says that he's scared, she basically tells him, you don't get to be scared. You are such and such person. You did all these great things. And she goes back over time. I'm scared. No, you're not. You watched empires rise and fall. To get the gladiators in Rome, sailed across oceans to new worlds. While you fed on kings and princes and popes, they wrote myths of you and made statues, and they trembled in their villages and beds and skyscrapers. So no. basically makes him feel better as he's dying. Kind of a mirror of what Danny does as Dr. Sleep. Except this is much more aggressive and violent. That's true. That's true. Yes. And then they eat his steam when he dies. Yeah. They all jump in. Even though it looks black and Like they're feral. Mm-hmm. You just see there's this aerial shot of them all like, oh, my God, he's dead. And they're all somber. And then all of a sudden just and they dogpile him to eat his steam. Mm-hmm. So they decide that they're all going to go after Abra because they have no idea what they're dealing with. But Crow is like, yeah, if she's as smart as she's as great as you think she is, maybe you ought to hold back. Rose, maybe you got to stay back and we'll go after her for you. And Abra convinces Danny to go and dig up the boy to get his glove. And Danny has to talk Billy into coming with him as like support. And he has to like convince him that this is all real. I love Billy's response in the car. It's just like. 
neither answer is good. If you're telling me the truth, that's fucked. If you're lying, then you're crazy. Then my best friend's crazy. Yeah, uh huh. Like neither is a good answer. Uh huh. But they're so they're driving there, and we see Abra projecting into the back seat, but only Danny can see her. Uh, basically, giving them instructions, and they're having a conversation. And Billy's like, "Is she here right now?" You know. Yes. It's cute. And we haven't talked about how great Abra is. She's really good. She's very good. Yeah. There's uh, a scene, Kylie Coran, that she's very impressive in. She. Hasn't been in much. I know. I'm surprised. She was in something called I Can, I Will, I Did, which I've never heard of. And now she's uh, she's filming a TV series coming out next year called Secrets of Sulphur Springs. Ooh. Yeah. What TV channel? Pray tell. It is about a boy and his family moving into a supposedly haunted hotel at the edge of a small town. Fuck yeah. Cool. Disney Plus. This is the first live-action Disney Channel series not to air on Disney Channel outside North America due to the closure of Disney Channel International in early 2020. Wow. So, yeah, I, I assume it's just going on Disney+. Plus. Wow. But, yeah, that's it. Surprising. But so they go there, and they find the boy, and Billy is convinced. And he throws up, which, okay, they don't talk – none of this is eventually going to matter – but they don't talk about how Danny and Billy do a piss poor job of thinking about how are they going to explain any of this. Yeah, they don't go into it at all. I'm sure he did in the book and they just figured, oh, the audience doesn't need to hear that. That's just boring information. Ultimately, by the end of the movie, it'll be okay. But at this point in the movie, you're watching, you're thinking, you're going to throw up where a boy is buried and leave your DNA. I don't know if DNA is in vomit. It's probably not, right? I don't know. They can identify you through vomit. I imagine because like your saliva and shit like that is in it, right? I think so. Sure, whatever. I don't know enough about DNA. But there will be dead bodies along this path and they'll have no explanation for them. You know what I mean? Like you think they're going to be in a lot of trouble. They won't be, but you think they will be. <laughs> exactly. So they go to get Abra, and the dad comes out raging, ready to... Are you Uncle Dan? Yeah, ready to kill Danny. <laughs> Abra, I thought you told him. I, you were supposed no. to show him. Yeah, I thought you showed him. I told him. That's not the same as showing him. And don't you talk to my daughter, and he punches him. And then Abra realizes that this is a bad thing, projects her shine into her dad's head, and shows him this little boy being killed. Yes. And to which the father needs a drink uh -huh. and He's offers shaking. it to Danny, who says no thanks. It's a little melodramatic. We see him, sh his hand shaking as he's pouring the whiskey. It's like, uh, I don't know if we needed that, but okay. I don't know if I had to experience a little boy's painful death. I, I mean, in the, the filmmaking too. sense, like it's a little cliche. I suppose. So they, she shines out to find where they are. She immediately explains that Rose is not with them. Oh, yes. They are going to the state park in New Hampshire. Yeah. They drive all the way up there, but she just shines as if she's there. She's yeah, not we really don't, there. We don't know necessarily that that's happening at this point. We think he's taking her with them and the dad's just going to agree to this. What we find out is, is that she stays at home with her dad and she shines onto her teddy bear that he found in her room. Danny did. 
And they set that on this table at this park, and they just leave her, in quotes, there as bait. Yes. And it's really great. It's an ambush. They shoot them all. Oh, yeah, and you see them cycle to die. It's great. And Rose has to deal with all their deaths because she's connected to all of them because Uh she created them, basically. She's like the mother alien. Andy comes out and tells... Danny to go to sleep. There's her her power, and but it's Danny, so she's not successful immediately. And she's she's freaking out about it. But he is being subdued, and she's gonna shoot him. But before she can shoot him, she gets shot by Billy. And as she's dying, surprised at the fact that she's dying, she rasps out, "Kill yourself!" to Billy, and he turns the gun on himself and shoots himself in the head. Danny's like, no. And now you're thinking, Danny, how are you going to explain he's dead in the middle of this park that you've been to? You're not gonna. There's no way you can explain this. But everyone who was there is dead except for Danny. But I think it's Abra mentions, we already knew that Rose wasn't there, but I didn't see Crow Daddy. And that's when we find out that he didn't go with them. He went straight to Abra where he knew or he figured he might be able to find out information about her by finding her house, shows up and she's there, drugs her, kills her dad, and then kidnaps her. It was mentioned, okay, so they're doing a lot of deaths here that did not happen in the book, and it was mentioned in the review that we watched that why would he kill the dad? That's just an unnecessary death. It it causes more People to pay attention. Attention, which, like we said, isn't a plot element in this movie. Right. They're not trying to evade attention. Because at one point, Danny says, I don't think they're worried about the police. I think they have connections. Uh Uh-huh. So I guess that's the explanation. Plus, Andy is like, you know, Crow didn't know she was dead. (laughs) Andy can just tell the police, we didn't do it. Right. These are not the droids you're looking for. (laughs) So, poor Danny is not doing well and almost drinks for the first time in over eight years. And instead, he smashes the bottle and calls out for... Tony. Tony. Mm-hmm. Who, okay, if you don't know, Tony was his imaginary friend from the book and the movie. Except in the in the movie, it's his imaginary friend in his finger... Uh, it's kind of like a repressed personality he has, but in the book, it's like an actual figure who appears before him. And it's really him. Yeah, older, yes. Yes, as a teenager. Yeah. So he's like calling out for himself here. <laughs> yeah. But like I said, this is a sequel to the movie, not the book, so that plot line isn't a part of it. True. But we never see Tony in this movie. He ne- it never comes. It just shows how desperate Danny is. Yes. And then Danny reaches out through the shine. Uh-huh. For the first time. Because he doesn't reach out to her. She only reaches out to him. Mm-hmm. So he reaches out to her and finds her quite quickly in the van. Yeah. That crow daddy is driving. Yes. And she can't reach out to him because she's been drugged. Yeah. We get another very cool scene of a room flipping and... Oh, yeah, the room tilts, his room tilts, and he slides towards the chalkboard uh, wall. And he falls into Abra. Yeah. And Abra, the the actress, 
does such a good job. She does a really here. good job. Yeah, she. You really believe that Ewan McGregor is inside of her. Uh-huh. Like this is what it would sound like. Yes, you know, it's a really good job, and he basically reveals the fact that yes, I am somebody else. This is not Abra. You know, they have a back and forth conversation about the difference between the true knot and Abra and Danny. I'm the guy that killed your friends. Yeah, uh, that's how he introduces himself. And I can't remember what the introduction to this phrase is, but Danny says through Abra, arrogance is what it is. What's so funny, friend? Well, it's just arrogance. It's arrogance, really. But it makes sense if you think you're going to live forever. Stands to reason. Of course you wouldn't wear your seatbelt. Because Crow Daddy isn't. And he strapped Abra into the seatbelt to keep her tight. And then he uses like a force push ability to slam down on the on the gas and turn the steering wheel and drive them right into a tree. And he goes flying through the front windshield. And cycles. And cycles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As Rose feels this and screams out in pain. This is the, the biggest pain that she's felt so far. She lost everyone else, but Crow Daddy was obviously the most important to her. Yes. So she spirits out to her and tries to be a bitch to her, but uh-huh. Abra just walks right on through her. She's not having any of her shit. Uh-huh. And so that pisses Rose off, and she takes all the rest of her steam. Yeah, she consumes all the rest of the steam that she had in reserve, because she's going to need to be strong to face these two powerful individuals. Yes. And Danny decides that the best place to go to have this battle is... The Overlook. So this is where we get our fan service. Again, in the book, the Overlook burned to the ground because, and this is important, through his possession, Jack realizes that he loves his son and fights back and prevents himself from killing his son and instead allows him to run away and allows the boiler to explode, killing him and destroying the hotel. That's how the book ends. So at this point in the book, they just go to the empty lot that's there now. It's been paved over or something like that. And all the action happens on this, this like, parking lot that overlooks this mountain view. Um, overlooks. Yeah, that's why it's called the Overlook. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, so that's the point. It's like this tourist attraction almost where you drive up and I can't remember what else is in there, but it's not important. I just remember it, they, it takes place on the paved over remains of the Overlook Hotel. Yes. But the movie, since The Shining didn't end that way, the Overlook still stood. Now we have a place to go and give us all of our fan service. Is it a little bit of a bullshit story that it's like, oh, they just shut it down after that and they just left it exactly as is? Exactly as is. (laughs) I mean, we know that this happened in the past. Like, there wouldn't have been any kind of vandalism. Before Jack... I mean, it is up out in the middle of nowhere, so it would be difficult to vandalize. Honey. <laughs> but people would, like, go out there and throw parties yes. and shit like that. Yes. So none of that happened here. And and we know that a previous caretaker, Grady, went insane and killed his family. So it's not like this hasn't happened before, but maybe the second time was the charm. Well, not the second time. Well, the, the second time history. that the caretaker. Yes. Yeah. 
but yes, this place is still standing. They shut it down. They could never reopen it after all of the shit that went down this time. It had a curse on it or whatever. But it is a very powerful place. The building itself shines. It's cursed. It's a cursed. What is he seeing in Friday the 13th? There's a curse on that place. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Doomed. <laughs> You're doomed. <laughs> it's got a death curse. We get to see shots that were cleaned up and color corrected to, to be, you know, day for night from the original movie. The helicopter shot over the mountain lake with the island, the car driving through the tunnel. These are all shots from the original movie that they just manipulated in on computers to apply to this movie. And I read somewhere that the sound of the car driving is actually a manipulated version of the sound of Danny riding his tricycle in the Overlook. You know, that sound that we hear mm-hmm. when he's on the wood? Mm-hmm. That, yeah. Interesting. I can't confirm that. Mm. And they get up there, and Danny's like, you're going to stay in the car, and you're going to turn on the heater. And you're going to wait here. I do not want you in this building any longer than you have to be. But you stay out here. You'll see her from a mile out. You'll see headlights. You just shine at me as soon as you see her. I need to go inside and prepare. Get ready. No, I need to wake it up. Yes. Yeah. And it wakes up immediately. As soon as he walks in, lights start turning on and everything. But he goes into the boiler room, the same room that we saw his mom in in the shining movie the original shining movie same room and he turns all the boiler on and everything like that but that's the get ready portion of this yes and he explores he he sees the place where his dad chopped through the two different doors with the axe he sees red rum we get his face through the opening in the doorway just like his dad's but we also get the flashback He sits down and he talks to the bartender Lloyd only this time although he claims to be Lloyd This time, it's actually his dad. The reason we know this is in the flashbacks, it's the same person. It's the same actor. He looks like him. Yeah. But who is he? It's it's Elliot. (laughs) Elliot. Why do I not have his name? Also, uh, the dad from Hill House. Also, the uncle from Bly Manor. Also... Ooh, the guy from, what's it called? Oh, that movie that we saw that was terrible. Red Velvet. Anyway, Henry Thomas. Henry Thomas is his name. We can say his name, yeah. Uh, He's in this, and he does an admirable job. It's not an over-the-top Jack Nicholson impression. Agreed. He's, He's Jack Torrance, not Jack Nicholson. Agreed. And he does a really good job, I thought. And there's that weird sort of, you know, because we get that same thing in the original where... There are people that seem to be two different people. You're the prior caretaker. No, I'm not. I'm the head butler or whatever. But no, he is the caretaker. And so now Jack Torrance, previously the caretaker in life as a spirit, is the bartender. Lloyd now. Like they take different roles after they die, manning the hotel, Mm -hmm. basically is what's happening. But there's that sort of confusion of, hey, you're that guy. No, I'm not. You know, you get that same thing that you got with Delbert Grady. Yes. But he does give a little bit of insight. So, of course, Danny knows it's his dad. Mm -hmm. So he tries to push him to admit who he is. And he does this by discussing his mother's death. And it's a very sad story 
about how she was, I don't know, probably dying of cancer. Yeah. And so it was a long, slow death. So uh-huh. he had to Every watch. Every time he looked at her, he saw the flies. The flies and... for months and months. On and end. she thought he was rejecting her by yes. not being able to spend time with her and look at her, you know. It was a bad way for her to die for both of them. And he keeps pushing him. And he's like, you don't want to hear about your wife. And he keeps saying, you've mistaken me for someone else. Mm-hmm. But eventually, Jack finally says. Medicine. Medicine is what it is. Bonafide cure-all. Depression, stress, remorse, failure. It wipes it all away. The mind is a blackboard. And this is the eraser. A man tries. He provides. But he's surrounded by mouths that eat and scream and cry and nag. So he asks for one thing, just one thing for him. To warm him up. To take the sting out of those days of the mouths eating and eating and eating everything he makes, everything he has. And a family, a wife, a kid. Those mouths eat time. They eat your days on earth. They just gobble them up. It's enough to make a man sick. And this is the medicine. So tell me, Bob, are you gonna take your medicine? Which is straight for the book readers. Right. It is not for the movie watchers because he didn't call him pup, except maybe once. No, that's in the TV movie. Right. Not in uh the Kubrick film. Yeah. And I liked that there was that hint of just like with Delbert Grady, who was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. But I do know that I had to once tell my kids or, right. Like, you know, correct them or exactly, whatever it is yeah. that he says. So it's kind of the same thing. It just sucks because you just, you're never going to get a theatrical film that gives Jack his redemption. And that sucks. Well, this is trying to fulfill that. And we'll get to that. This is trying to give you the ending from the first book that you didn't get in the first movie. And to redeem Jack is to take that away from us again. That's my point. That's why Jack cannot be redeemed. But they're taking away his redemption again. You can look at it both ways. But my point is, is who gives a fuck about Jack? This is Danny's story. Don't take away redemption from Danny so you can give it to Jack. Somebody's in the movie for like four fucking minutes. That's a choice. So you want to make it a story about Jack is what you're saying. No, I'm saying that I would have liked a redemption. I know you would have, but it would have made the movie worse. You can, you know, if if hopes and wishes were whatever, you know, that wish into one hand and shit in the other and see which fills up faster. (laughs) The point is, is you may want it, but if you got it, you would have had also a worse movie. So Rose approaches Abra reaches out to Danny and she comes inside and she immediately feels that the place is sick. Yeah. And it's like a cancer inside. Whereas when Rose enters, she is impressed with all the power. Uh She is in lust over the power. These two different perspectives. Yes. 
and she sees a lot of the stuff from the first film. The blood... Coming out of the elevator, yeah. But then she walks into the room with the typewriter, and wouldn't you know it, it's just sitting right there, uh-huh. exactly how it was left. Uh-huh. There's no reason to take any evidence into anything <laughs> uh-huh. when yeah. there's been a murder. Not to, yeah, exactly. You got to deal with the fact that you're getting fan service to excite you, but that does sort of break the immersion a bit. But the, the fact of the matter is, is all the fan service was good. So it wasn't like, you know how fan service can be really obnoxious and totally out of place and totally take you out of the moment sometimes. And it's like, eh, it doesn't work. This works mostly. And I was very surprised by how much it worked. I agree. I agree. It's just there's a little couple things. Yes, absolutely. It's just like, oh, come on. <laughs> But Abra and Danny are standing on the, the lower the level stairs. of the stairs. Yeah, the top of the first set of stairs. And he has the axe. Uh-huh. A different axe, though. He saw a fire axe behind the glass, and that's the one he took. Not the one that his dad had. And put into Dick Halloran. <laughs> and Rose immediately feels how strong he is. Oh, who are you? Yes. How, how can we, we never find you? you? Yeah, well, because he repressed everything. Mm-hmm. And basically, very quickly, they put him, they put her into the maze. Yes. Which Rose thinks is Abra's mind, but in fact, it's Danny's mind. So she'll wander through the maze a little bit, and she'll try to follow Abra when she sees her run around corners. She Uh, even calls her pup. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. So she's feeling that same thing she's getting that from i mean really the only one the only spirit who's there at this point is jack he's the only one that died there and and didn't go with danny so she's getting that sensation most of all is jack's the the spirit that was within jack that last inhabited jack is now kind of inhabiting her a little bit and that's why she uses the term pup and it's a callback to the book again uh, and earlier in this movie, until Abra ends up doing this sort of, ha ha ha, you can't see me, sort of, I'm now behind you, and like starts cutting out the back of her knees with a knife. And eventually, Rose gets keen to this. She and catches her on catches the fourth her. try. Yeah, and grabs her by the neck and holds her there. And is like, as she's talking to her, you caught me monologuing. This chest is sliding up behind her, behind Rose. And we get the impression, oh, he's trying to lock her away. Yes. And she's like, wait a minute. This isn't your mind. Whose mind is this? And she immediately does this sort of like psychic burst and throws everything away and throws Abra away and throws the box away. And she's back in the room with the typewriter. And that's when she says to Danny, who are you? How come we never found you? You're very powerful. I'd like the to see what your steam tastes like, basically. Well, first she offers him to join her. Yeah. She says, join me. Eat well, live long, which is the same thing she said to Snake by Andy. And he's just like, wow, you must be super desperate since you're the last one. And she says, I'm not the last. I'm just the prettiest. It could be bluster. It could be real. We do not know, and we do not, do not find know. out. Yeah. 
But it'd be interesting. I mean, he's left it open mm-hmm. for another book with about yeah. about Abra. I yeah yeah okay. I don't think it's necessary, but I just like the idea that there there's more out there than what we just get in this one story. I like that concept. Yeah, he could certainly continue it with Abra's story. Mm-hmm. And so Danny tells Abra to run, and he's going to take her on just himself. And they get into a fight. She walks up as he's walking backwards up the stairs. She's walking forwards and she's got her arms out in front of her, just like Jack. And he ends up trying to attack her with the axe. There's a little bit of back and forth until he buries it in her shoulder. And then she takes it out and stabs him in his leg with the back end of it, with the pointy end of it. Well, she throws him down the stairs, just like Jack was thrown down the stairs. Yeah. When he was hit on the head with the baseball bat. But unlike Jack, who passed out, he is alive and she sticks her thumb into the wound in his leg, which is like the femoral artery or something. Yeah, oh, I just got your femoral artery. You're going to bleed out. And as he's screaming out in pain, this steam is coming out and she's like, oh, this is nice stuff. Even at your age, Uh, you taste so good. You taste like whiskey. Uh Uh-huh. And she sees his past. Uh Uh-huh. And she's just like, oh, my God, look at all this beautiful, delicious pain, just like Pennywise. Uh Uh-huh. And then she sees all of the boxes, and she's like, oh, what's in there? And and he's like, they're starving. Well, she says something first. What's in those? Something special, huh? They're not special. They're starving. About how... Something special? Yeah, and and she, she says something about the quality of them. I can't remember what it is. And he says, no, they're starving. And then all the boxes fly open. And then she looks up in the real world and sees all the spirits from the hotel from the first movie surrounding her. And they end up attacking her. And, and they eat they her. They eat her. And but she dies. Poor, poor Ewan. He's been hit. He can't get up. He can't run away. He can't defend himself. Uh So they immediately take him for what they always wanted him for, a vessel. Uh Uh-huh. He's powerful enough for them. You know, the the house, the hotel wanted him because he was so full of this shine. They wanted his steam kind of the same way like the True Knot does. Right, but they didn't want to eat it. They want to use it. Yes, exactly. Now he's been turned much like Jack was, although with greater force. It's not a subtle manipulation. It's an aggressive one. Well, again, in the original book, that is what happened. I mean, they he full on got taken over by the hotel. Yeah. Danny ends up talking to the hotel just as Abra will talk to the hotel. Yes, exactly. So what we got in the original book, we literally get here. He ends up hunting her with the axe and he's limping because he got hit in the leg i like that they explained why he moves like jack torrance moves all of it makes sense within the plot and so the fan service works and he ends up finding her in room 237 and she ends up identifying that you're not uncle dan you're the hotel you're a mask just a mask you're a false face which is what danny told jack in the book in the original but not in the movie we didn't get this scene And he's about to swing and get aggressive and he stops and his eyes change back and he tells her to get out of here. You have to run. Well, not until after she says, 
you don't know where you're standing. You're in Dan Torrance, and yeah. he's super powerful. Uh-huh. <laughs> so she runs, and he ends up, and she runs into all the spirits that are out and about. We see Delbert Grady. We see the the owner. Oh. We see the twins, Delbert's daughters. She also says, also, I know what you don't know. I know what you forgot. Yes. And that's when he realizes that, the oh my god, the boiler room. room. So he runs down to the boiler room, but Danny won't let the spirit that's inside of him turn it, off. turn it off. Which is, again, what happens in the book. So we're getting it now. In the book, though, of Dr. Sleep, Jack Torrance's spirit, who was already previously redeemed in the Shining book... Comes back because he's been stuck here at, at at this place this entire time, or maybe was even locked away with all the other spirits. I don't remember, but he comes back and basically saves Danny. Danny lives. Danny does not live in this one. The boiler goes up in flames, and as he's sitting there in the boiler room, his mom appears before him, and they ha- we see Danny as a little kid, and then the whole thing goes up in flames. And in that outside. one moment, mm-hmm. they could have had Jack there. Why? He was never redeemed. Why would he be there? It doesn't... I, I know you want it to be like the book, and I know you like the ending of the book. It does not work because this is not a sequel to the Shining novel. It's a sequel to the Shining movie. <laughs> and we got what we got and we can't pray away the ending that we got. So the the importance is now the story is that's not in the book but is in the movie is that Danny did what his dad could not. His role model, the guidance that he was given, the one he loved so much turned on him and would have killed him if he could. Danny, given the exact same scenario, is strong enough to fight back, just like he was strong enough to really fight the alcohol addiction that his dad was unable to. So it's really, really important that we see these two things side by side. And if you redeem Jack, then it's not as effective, that comparison. We need Danny to be the one redeemed and Jack not. Just like Rose is never redeemed, Rose brings up Andy... This kid that's very powerful turns her, perverts that power and her innocence as much as it existed. And Andy made the decision to go along with it and to kill other people instead of allowing herself to die. Abra finds a better mentor, a stronger mentor, one that Danny never had aside from Dick Halloran, who was killed right away, and tries to be more Dick Halloran than Rose the Hat. And he ends up getting that redemption as a result of redeeming himself. He's already redeemed himself in the decisions he's made. And now we get to see that reflected in his sacrifice. So all you people out there that wanted to end the way the book would have ended, it really, really, really would have diminished the themes of the movie. That's my strong, strong feeling. But Kelsey always likes the book better than the movie. <laughs> there are very, very few exceptions. Are there? What exceptions are there? I like Fight Club, the movie, better than the book. Princess Bride, did you ever read the book? Never actually read the book. Princess Bride is one of those great examples of the book is fantastic. And so is the movie. And they are different in key ways. 
and they're both great for what they are. And that's kind of the way I feel about these two movies, The Shining and Dr. Sleep, and the novels, The Shining and Dr. Sleep. That's how I feel about The Wizard of Oz. I think they're both great for different reasons. Yeah, they're different, and they're they're great examples of that story in that medium. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think this is one of those cases where the book, the movie is different from the book, and it makes it good for what it is, not what the book is. But I think with Fight Club, it's more just that I, I love his stories. I don't like his way of writing. Really? I was a big Chuck Palahniuk fan. Yeah, I know you are. I would say was. I haven't read anything from him in a long time. His style, I just, I was like, what What are you doing? I don't like this. There's that story from Haunted, which I think they use in Final Destination or one of the Final Destination movies. With the pool? With the pool, yeah. I, I had a creative writing teacher read that to class in uh-huh. college. The once story from Haunted? Yeah, yeah, I think trying to, like, shock people. I think it's from Haunted. Yeah, Yeah, because it's it supposed to be shocking. It's a real story. He heard it at one of the at one of the help groups that he went to when he was researching Fine Club. I know it's a real story because he told me it was a real story. <laughs> well, Lottie <laughs> fucking die. Good for you. Yes, he met him. Congratulations. I drove all the way out to Vegas. And there's a picture of me, a really, really bad cell phone picture from like before iPhones. It took on my taken on my flip phone. <laughs> I can't believe you didn't have a camera. No. I didn't know there was going to be like photo ops. It was just a speaking engagement and then you got to like meet and greet. And that was really cool. And then he touched my friend's breast with a fake plastic hand. He asked permission first. (laughs) (laughs) He seems like a weird guy. And I don't know if I'm fully on board with him. But uh, at the time, I was a really, really big fan. I love his stories. I just don't like his writing style. Yeah. Anyway, we're talking about Chuck Palahniuk now and not Stephen King. (laughs) Nice little side tangent. I love Stephen King's writing Uh style. But the movie's not over yet. No! Abra goes home and lives with her mom because her dad's dead. We need a ghosty moment. We see her talking to Danny in her room and talking about, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm okay. And what does he tell her? What's the final piece of advice to contradict the advice he gave her before, which is keep your head down and don't let anybody know about you? What does he tell her instead? I told you, when I first met you, I told you that you should hide. That you should keep your head down. Keep your shine out of sight. But I was wrong. Shine on, Aberstone. You shine on. And we all shine on. Like the moon and the stars and the sun. says shine on abra stone or shine on abra or whatever it is which you shine on abra which is a callback to where stephen king got that from in the first place it's where he got the name of the book the shining it's from that song what does he mean shine on oh what if you had powers and like that <laughs> yeah so that's where the shining the name the shining came from was from that song so it's a nice little callback to that behind the scenes story. And we're basically told that 
She's gotta catch them all. Pokemon. Yes. So what? How does she? What is she trying to catch, and how? She also has to get all the ghosts from the, the Overlook. Cause Just like Danny had to do. Yeah. Uh-huh. So she does the whole, like, gets up, goes to the bathroom, closes the door, uh-huh. takes care of business. To be clear, the Overlook was not an evil building because <laughs> it was haunted. It was haunted because it was an evil building. It had its own spirit. It had its own Some shine. Some places are just born bad. Yes. Rose Red, right? Yes, which I is think based that is on the haunting red. of Hill House. Yes, uh huh. So even though the building is destroyed, just like they latched onto Danny, these spirits latched onto her. And so we see the bathtub lady, and she walks in and closes the door, just like Danny did. We found out in the in the early flashback in the movie. So I mean, we talked about this a whole lot while we were talking about the plot. So there's not much more to say. It's a very attractive movie. It's well made. I think Mike Flanagan did a great job, like he does with a lot of things. Not everything he's done, but with a lot of them. Very, very impressed. And I think I was like, you know, it's not that bad the first time I saw it. Agreed. I was like, that that was a worthy version of this. It wasn't that bad. And then seeing it again. I actually really enjoyed it. Yeah, exactly. Same thing happened to both Kelsey and I. Mm -hmm. And we have completely different opinions on the role of film adaptations. Mm -hmm. So... That it's should tell very you something. Good. That should See tell it. you something. Yes. If you, if, if you haven't been turned off by this entire explanation, we've been talking about it for like an hour and a half now. <laughs> when he sees Azzy go into one of the rooms and he's like, what are you doing, Azzy? There's nobody in there. And that's when he sees Dick in that room. What he's reading when he gets up to follow her is the playgirl that Jack Nicholson was reading at the beginning of the Shining movie. Really? It's just a, just a nod. Totally unimportant, but just a nod. That's the other note I have here that uh, I didn't get to in our discussion. But that's it. That's all the lightning round stuff that I have. What do you think the movie has on Rotten Tomatoes, Kelsey? Maybe like an 80? It did underperform. They were disappointed in it, considering how well it did. It, the movie, chapter one. okay. And I guess Pet Cemetery did pretty well in in the theaters. Unlike Pet Cemetery, this movie got a lot more attention after it was released on streaming services. Uh, but because yeah. Pet Cemetery was was marketed as a new, fresh, yeah. scary teen flick. Yeah. Which it wasn't. And Doctor Sleep was a little esoteric in that, like, you needed to know what was going on with The Shining. And I think a lot of kids who might have gone to see something like Pet Cemetery or it would have been turned pass, away by something like this. Yeah, they yeah. would pass on this because this is more of an intellectual conceptual film uh-huh yeah but i mean it is but yeah there's all this like baggage that comes along with it you know mm-hmm. that's the that's the problem with it being a sequel and a remake kind of like an adaptation and it remade the ending of the book and like you know what i mean like it so it's a lot of things going on with this movie that you don't have to deal with when you're seeing it chapter one or pet cemetery which we didn't really like i especially didn't like the pet cemetery adaptation I didn't like it either. But I, I think I, I might have hated it. I don't <laughs> know. Um, anyway, you said 80. 77. Dr. Sleep forsakes the elemental terror of its predecessor for a more contemplative sequel that balances poignant themes against spine-tingling chills. A 59 Metacritic. Yikes. 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 That means it got a lot of, like, two and three star reviews. Because those convert to... 
like 40 and 60 ratings and a B plus cinema score. Overrated or underrated? Underrated. Okay, I will tell you that at the time of our reviews for both of these, the original Shining, Kubrick's version, had an 85 Rotten Tomatoes. You gave it a 90, I gave it a 95. The TV miniseries had a 42 Rotten Tomatoes score. You gave it a 73, I gave it a 70. What would you give this version? I'm going to give it an 83. I was going to give it an 88. Because I think I think I have it written down here already. Eighty eight. I I liked it more than you liked it, and it was reflected. But it's not like a ninety. It it it's not nearly as good as Kubrick's version. It's it's standing on the shoulders of giants in a way. Mm-hmm. Both Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick. Yes, and it doesn't get credit for that. <laughs> but what it did it, on its own, it did very well. Yes. I think it just needed a little bit of editing, a little bit of paring down. I think it needed a little oomph. I think it needed a little bit more. Maybe, but to to my mind, this is just about as good as it was ever going to be. I really enjoyed it. I uh-huh. liked it a lot. Yeah. And that is 2019's Doctor Sleep. So this is kind of our Thanksgiving episode. So no Thanksgiving this year. We might... Live tweet the Maybe. two movies we were going to do. Maybe. You want to tell them what those movies were? Blood Rage and The Boogeyman. And I wanted to give a shout out to Chickapedia for sending an awesome list via Twitter. I had already heard of Blood Rage. It was already on my list of Thanksgiving horror but I had not heard of Boogeyman and that was on that list. So thank you for that. Yeah, so we'll We'll probably be watching it this long Thanksgiving weekend and live tweeting. So if you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, you can do that at Pod Cemetery and catch that there around Thanksgiving time. Maybe the night of Thanksgiving, maybe some other time during that weekend. But instead, what are we watching next week, Kelsey? Next week, we are going to do... A movie called Dial M for Murder. A movie called Dial M for Murder. Like, nobody's ever heard of it. That's right. (laughs) Well, nobody cares about our The Birds episode. And The Birds is a much bigger movie than Dial M for Murder was. Oh, well. (laughs) I want to see Dial M for Murder. And we're going to pair it with Your Next. Your Next. Which means we'll finally have finished the alphabets. Oh, it's our Y. Yes. We have a Q? Quarantine. Oh, right. You know, the thing we've been living in for almost a year now? Yeah, that's a good point. That was our Q. Yeah, I guess Y was the last one. The last. We didn't have a Y. Okay, so we'll finally have a Y. Awesome. And I've only seen it once. We saw it. Did we see it together? I think we saw it once in theaters. I remember being, and this might be blasphemous, I remember being disappointed because it was played up as it was going to be way better than I thought it ended up being. I think that might have messed with my perception of the movie. It's supposed to be, oh, it's the movie that saved home invasion movies. And it spawned all these other similar sort of knockoffs like, um, what's the other one that we just saw? Ready or Not. Ready or Not. You really liked Ready or Not. I liked Ready or Not. You didn't. I liked... You kind of hated the characters in Ready or Not. I hated Ready or Not. I liked your next. Yeah. 
Uh, I didn't hate your next. I was just like, yeah, it was good. But I just wasn't as impressed as I assumed I was going to be from what everyone said about it. So maybe seeing it a second time, I, I'll i be relieved of that sort of overhanging sensation. And I can assess it for what it is. We'll see. Maybe I'll like it more. Just like I like Dr. Sleep more the second time around. We'll see. Again, it's not that I didn't like it. It's just that I was like, it was good. <laughs> you know, one of those sort of reactions. <laughs> anyway, that is next week. Until then, you can always reach us at our website, podcemetery.com. Follow us on Twitter. I already said you can follow us there, at podcemetery. Subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice. Rate and review. And as always, five-star written reviews, where you actually write out content is the biggest help you can give for us there. Sharing us with your friends is even bigger than that. And listening in the GD first place is even bigger than that. Thank you all very, very much for listening. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Man takes a drink. Drink takes a drink. And then the drink takes the man. Midnight were the stars and you. Midnight and a rendezvous. Your eyes held a message tender Saying I surrender All my love to you Midnight brought a sweet romance I know all my whole life Whatever else I do, midnight where the stars and you. Okay, can you say something? <sighs> Hello. Are you okay? Are you gonna be able to make it? <laughs> you seem to be dying over there. <laughs> it's been a long couple months. Uh huh. I don't know if he's a if he's a thing in Christianity, but he's a thing in Judaism, which I guess by default would make him a thing in Christianity. Yep, um, that's how and, that works. <laughs> and uh, is we get it both? Yes, the best of both worlds. We <laughs> is that who he actually was Scatman Carruthers? Yeah, that was the real guy. That's the real guy. Yeah, I mean, I can look it up, but yeah. I'm the scat man. <laughs> she also, I don't know if this is one of the main characters or not, because it's been a while since I've seen it. I don't remember their names, but she was Anna in The Girl on the Train. I really enjoyed that film, but I can't for the life of me remember what happened. <laughs> oh, she's in The Snowman. Oh, that movie was garbage. I live tweeted that movie. That was terrible. It was really, really bad. I think oh, I like-rated it. Now she's in The Greatest Showman, but fuck that movie. Sorry if you like that movie. <laughs> Celebrating a horrible person. Yeah, none of that movie is true. <laughs> like, practically none of it. That's a good point. Well put. His last name's really Freeman? Yes. Like Abigail Freeman?
Is it Freeman or Fremantle? Oh, is it Fremantle? I think it might be Fremantle. Okay. But maybe it is Freeman. Oh, God, now I got to look it up. God <laughs> damn it. It is Fremantle. No, no, very much. She was taken advantage of, but she still had decisions to make. And she did. This coming from the guy who tells me to be more empathetic. No, what I'm saying is that it's going to come up later that in this version, Danny's dad didn't sacrifice himself to save his son. In the book, he did. In this version, Danny gets to make that choice, and he does. Andy is effectively presented with the same choice. She could not do it, and then she'd die. Die or kill other people, she chose kill other people. That's my point. It's a pretty shitty deal. It is a shitty deal, but it's a, it tells you something about who you are. I suppose. And I think so. the circumstances under which you kill people is important, right? Like, anyways, this isn't going to go in the recording because it spoils what happens with Danny, but... You know, yeah, if you're protecting yourself, I don't mean go ahead and let them kill you, but you have a choice to be a predator or allow yourself to die and not kill people. So you think that vampires should die? I think that Brad Pitt tries to do the honorable thing by eating rats and not killing people. That's his humanity that's still left in him. And even when... He gets discovered and redeemed in a way, right? Like, he eventually changes his ways again. And that's the reason he's giving this interview is because he fucking hates that he's a vampire. And he hates Lestat. And then it, it, it but it is always, what's the term I'm looking for? Subdued. Subdued, yeah, that's exactly the word. We get another very cool scene of a, a, a floor. Of a room flipping, medicine is what it is. And he's talking about The alcohol, alcohol, yeah. And he says, the mind is a blackboard, and this is the eraser. A man tries to provide, but he's surrounded by mouths. Now tell me, pup, are you going to take your medicine? I think that Brad Pitt tries to do the honorable thing by eating rats 